welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, yes. how you doing? I'm seeing the world in a whole new way. Because <laughs> I uh, never quite know what... <laughs> it's like you say a thing, it's just like, okay, is it because my apartment is full of boxes? Is it because... Uh, got it, it. Because I got new glasses today. Yes. Uh, this morning. Um, yeah, I got, I got some glasses. Um, I like them, but it's also like... When you have glasses for a while, they become like a part of you. Yes. And when you have different glasses on, it's almost like, like I feel like I'm wearing a costume or something. There's something on my face that like I feel like it's Halloween because I don't have my glasses on, but I yeah. do have my glasses on. They're just not the glasses that I've that my face has become accustomed to. <laughs> yeah, I can I can definitely it, see that. And so I'm I'm more aware of the frames in my vision mm. than I than I was with because I was just used to the old ones. But uh, I'll get used to these. Well, and these frames are thicker as well. They are. That ones. was something I wanted. I, I think I'd always, since I had glasses, which was, I, I didn't get them until I was in high school, I always wanted uh, smaller, like I liked smallish rectangular frames. Mm-hmm. And I think I've, in recent years, come to like admit to myself that I, A, I don't have the face for that to begin with, because I have a oval to round face. And... Um, <laughs> Because I got a big head. I could see that. And also, in the years since I first got glasses, my head has gotten bigger because I've put on weight and I drink more and I'm, uh, you know, it's the Irish. And you're, uh, you know, and like uh, the praise from the show. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes this head swell. Um, So, yeah, uh, I I got new glasses. They're bigger, but I think they fit my face better. All right. That's what's going on with me. Um, That's what's going on with my eyes. Uh, with my ears, uh, I'm just keeping it with tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. I haven't made any changes in that department, nor do I pan- plan to, because these uh, earbuds are so great. They're, if, you, if you don't know, they're, they're, don't know, they're professional quality earbuds uh, at, a, at an affordable price, uh, a low, low price, if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, where you get one third off and free shipping. Variety of styles and colors tweakedaudio.com slash pretension there you go i kept that short this week yes because we've got we've got other things to talk about um in many ways Uh so uh okay hey everybody i got good news for you and better news for us uh we have a sponsor uh aside from tweaked audio who you know they they always love us you know as opposed to these fair and we them oh very much so these these fair weather friends um it's just like i'm sorry our kickstarter is over we have no use for you anymore um speaking of that uh we do have uh, a sponsor that uh is is uh pretty interesting actually okay it is a kickstarter for a film and it is entitled you're dead (laughs) okay uh, You're Dead is a horror action you feature don't film. Yeah, I know. <laughs> a horror action, action feature film blending modern horror with the 1970s grindhouse aesthetic and including healthy doses of violence, sex appeal, and American muscle. I don't know what that means. Um, it all sounds good to me. Oh, it sounds good. No, I'm not, I'm not uh, downplaying <laughs> it. Uh, I, I want to... F- what does it mean? Let's find out. Let's all give some What money. do you think of when you think of American muscle? I think of cars, I think. Like muscle yeah, cars. yeah. I could see that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, 
Lexi and Beth are two sisters who take a wrong turn and find themselves in a strange town not found on any map. When the sisters discover the town's dark secret, they become targets for the locals fighting for their lives against an evil that will never let them leave. Produced by Golden Tiger Productions and Seek Pictures, You're Dead is shooting in Baltimore, Maryland this spring, and they need your help to fund the film. Just go to BattleshipPretension.com and click on the skyscraper ad on the side of the page to help make this film a reality. Now, as it happens, I have uh, I met one of the... Uh, uh, one of the producers, and I don't remember exactly. He might also be the director and mm-hmm. writer. I don't remember in uh, like which. Like I think he might be involved in every capacity. <laughs> but but I met him at uh, Comic Con. Uh, oh, did I meet year. him? Yeah, pr- probably Jay. Okay. So um, if I saw a yeah. picture, I'd probably remember. Probably yes, but uh, but yeah, he uh, he told me it's about this. Very project. bad with names. I'm not too great either. Like to the point where I, I feel guilty. Like it feels like it feels rude how yeah. bad I am with people's names. Yeah, it's uh, here's here's a little peek behind the curtain. If you're uh, listening, and we have a guest on, and I and I uh, call somebody chief or buddy, uh-huh. it's because in that moment I couldn't immediately call up their name. I know their name, uh-huh. but it didn't. It does. You know, like I say David easily because I know you. Right. Your name is David. But like if it's somebody that maybe. You booked on the show and not me. It's just like, all right, it's chief, buddy. You know, like, and then and then, and then it's like immediately after that, it's like, okay, their name is you know, Pete Jul- or Julian. something or or yeah, um, I know Pete Holmes, but um, but Julian, you, you couldn't remember his name to no life. Yeah. No, <laughs> I have a thing. Even when I am the person who booked the the guest, where the moment before I announce their name, I have this thought like. What if I've got this completely wrong? Like, what if I have forgotten? <laughs> like, I've convinced myself that we booked instead of to stick with Julian. Like, yeah. Uh, say we had also booked, I don't know, Taylor Williamson, another like yeah uh, local comic. Uh, if I like, I'm convinced. Like, I convinced myself in that brief second. It all, it all happens in a split second where I think this isn't Julian Nicholson, this is Taylor, Taylor Williamson, and I'm going to say Julian, not Julian Nicholson, Julian McCullough. No, it's all happening. Watch out. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, that's yeah, that's the peek behind the curtain. Yeah, but so uh, but yeah, so I met I met Jay, and uh, he told me about uh, You're Dead, and uh, it sounded very interesting. And uh, if you if you click on the skyscraper ad, it'll take you to. Um, uh, the video about the film if you watch that it actually looks very interesting and it looks like it has like they have a very sure hand uh, as far as the tone uh, he did say that they want to you know it says here they want to try and do a grindhouse aesthetic it seems like they are pretty solid with what that means so cool. uh, so good for them uh, please go and, and help them out I'm sure uh, they're, they're getting very close to their goal already so anything that you can uh, donate uh, not donate you get some rewards yeah yeah uh, but anything that you can contribute uh, will help yeah. So there we go. Well, what do you say? We're less than ten minutes in. What do you say we get into it, shall we? Indeed, because we got a big episode here. It's uh, anyone anyone who has listened to the show for a while and knows how a calendar works uh, knows that this being the episode that goes up one week before the Oscars, uh, we're doing our best of 2012. However, speaking of people knowing the history of the show, uh-huh. this is, I believe, also episode 310. No, next week is 310. Next week is 310. Yeah. Oh, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I we're doing the Oscar yes, episode yes. on 310. Yes, this is 309. Okay. So we are skipping. Yes. So um, I want to, real quick, I do this every year, um, run down the list of because I feel like I'm a fraud if I don't. This is the stuff that I wanted to see that I didn't. Now, obviously, I didn't see everything. Yeah. I didn't see Silver Linings Playbook, but I didn't really want to. Okay. Uh, on my list of stuff that I wanted to see but didn't, 
The Imposter, In Another Country, Detropia, Middle of Nowhere, Starlet, uh, End of Watch, Bestiaire, Chronicle, Robot and Frank, Chapatulis, and Bad Fever. Okay. Those uh, are the ones I wanted to see that I didn't. I do not have the ones that I wanted to see listed, but off the top of my head, um, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, The Loneliest oh. Planet. Uh, you'd, you'd like both these movies quite yeah, a bit, actually. The Imposter. I really... That sounded yeah. great. And then I should is also... Just, is it The Imposter or is it just Imposter? It's The Imposter. Okay, Imposter yeah. is a... Uh, completely forgotten science fiction <laughs> yes. film starring Gary Sinise That's right. from like and 2001. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, and then I should also be my yearly thing of like uh, I saw and loved Once Upon a Time in Anatolia and The Lon- Loneliest Planet. Neither one of those qualifies because by my math those are 2011 films. Oh really? I thought Loneliest Planet was uh, was 2012. Uh, I knew, I knew uh, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia could go either way. Uh, and, I, and I didn't see Killer Joe or Magic Mike. I feel like I would enjoy both of those. Um, I also I saw Magic Mike. I didn't see Killer Joe. I, mean, I should put that because I wanted to see Killer Joe, but that might actually also be a 2011 film by my by my weird math. And I should also say, like some of the movies that I'm going to be mentioning today, um, very well might show up on people's best of 2013 lists. Oh, okay. So that it goes both ways. Oh boy, that's okay. That's going to frustrate me. Um, <laughs> um, okay, but let's. Uh, we wanted to start. Because we know when we get to the top ten, we're going to do ten through one. Yeah. We're going to go from least best to most best. Yeah. So I figured we'd extrapolate that uh, layout, that design, to the entire episode and start at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the worst film of the year. Okay. I think I'm going to go first. No, you go first because people know what yours is. Yeah. Because um, you've said it like every week many, for the many past times, three weeks. I, I, I want to scream it from the rooftops. <laughs> uh, it is uh, Chris Colfer's... He did not direct it, but it, it is. He produced it. He wrote it. He stars in it. It is basically his film. Uh, the director is uh, inconsequential, um, <laughs> and it is struck by lightning. It is. It's awful in a lot of ways. The movie the, deserves to be, to be struck by lightning. Very much so. Uh, not the least of which is it. It wastes a couple of pretty solid performances by Allison Jenny and uh, Rebel Wilson. Um, but by and large, it's a film that that lacks any any perspective. If it had an ounce of perspective, it would realize that the argument it is making is that bullying is okay, provided you bully the quote-unquote right people. Like, for example, the cheerleaders. Uh-huh. You know, they, they're in power. I don't, again, I, I went to high school, like, I, I don't remember the clear, obvious clicks, you know? Yeah. Like, a friend of mine was like, you know, played football and then did theater. Like, it was just... There's there's a lot of line crossing there, but um, but yeah, and so like, but it's okay to to you know bully the cheerleaders because they're cheerleaders, and I don't like that attitude. I don't I don't I yeah. don't know. It's something I find where it's just like okay, we're it's like we don't like this behavior unless of course it's someone that we don't like, in which case let's let's go full fledged into it. And so uh, it's just a very frustrating film. If you would like to listen to a lot more on this, you can listen to my episode of more than one lesson in which josh and i talk about it for almost two hours <laughs> josh loved the movie absolutely yeah we're, it's a debate <laughs> it's just a two-hour long debate all right my uh worst movie of the year um you'll know if you read the website maybe you'll have an idea because i i wrote a very negative review of this which west read so if you listen to the um the reviews in the feed you'll know um my w- absolute worst movie of the year is celeste and jesse forever 
Um, and I think, I, I think I, I know that I saw movies this year that were more poorly made. Mm-hmm. You know, say like Lola Verses, if we're going to stick in the uh, romantic comedy uh, okay. uh, area. But this uh, movie, well, it was really bad in many ways in that it was, uh, it, it just hit so many of the really dumb cliches. Like, like, oh, she, like she's sad and it's funny that she like gets drunk at a pool party and passes out and is floating around. Like, well, there's kids running around. It's like shot. Like it's funny, but it's like, no, she's maybe like she's got a problem. And but, but at the same way, in the same way, like there is a way to shoot it that in that could make you laugh. Right, right, right. But it, they just don't do that. It sounds like uh, no, because it, the movie wants to. I'll get to that in a second. Okay, sorry. Um. Also, she uh, has a very um. Well-paying and fulfilling job that she is terrible at. And that's just okay, like, because her life is, I guess, more about, it's so much about what's going on with her romantic or emotional state that she apparently just doesn't have to be good at her job. And that's the kind of thing that I think I, I feel like I see in movies a lot. And it also has maybe, I don't know, what certainly one of my least favorite movie tropes ever, Okay, which is the lead ca- the main character giving a toast at someone's wedding where the toast is really all about them and everything you've been to this movie and like but not in a way that it's like where people are like oh this is uncomfortable or like shut up and sit down like everyone thinks it's fucking charming or whatever because she's the star of the movie so obviously yeah yeah the fact that it's uh it's uh, Ari uh, Grainer getting married. It doesn't matter. Everyone's there to see Rashida Jones, and that's it's Aaron Brockovich syndrome, where everyone's just uh, like, "Oh, I read the script. You're the star. Yeah. Here, just take what you need." Yeah, 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 yeah. And she like Rashida Jones wrote the movie and then plays this character who is not only just a boring, uh, you know, recycling of a billion other characters, but also the movie is like weirdly spends the whole time like punishing her for. I guess for ending her marriage, Jesse to Jesse, mm-hmm. uh, who's a fucking like wastrel loser, do nothing layabout. Andy Samberg. Okay, like she had every reason. Like their their lives as well as they get along. That's part of the thing. They're still like really close friends, but they broke up, uh, uh, and and she left him. Uh, and as well as they get along, they're clearly not like. To, they shouldn't be married. She didn't do anything wrong, and yet the movie spends the whole time punishing her. And I found that uh, okay. But How odd that both of our least favorite movies were written by their lead actors. Ah, that's a good, and, and both of them seem to lack a certain perspective. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and also um, to get back to that like sort of realism thing with the like being drunk in the pool or whatever, because um, the movie wants to be like I think a realistic or. It wants to make, want you to think it's a realistic portrait of a certain type of Angelino. Okay. And this is maybe the reason it's on the bottom of my list is because I am that type of Angelino. Like, I have a, you know, a decent job job. I'm like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm middle class. I'm white. I'm like, I guess, into like hip bands or whatever, <laughs> you know, like... Probably not that if that hip if you're gonna say, <laughs> but I mean like I, I I exist in the same like pop culture strata as these characters, yes. um, and so the fact that it was like trying to be about people like me and my friends and being 
so false, hitting every note so false, is probably what drove it right down to the bottom of my list. Hmm. Okay. All right. So, um, moving on up. What's yeah. next? Uh, overrated. Okay. Um, I'll go first this time. All right. Um, you mentioned Rebel Wilson. I did. Uh, I've never seen. I didn't see struck struck uh, by lightning. Okay. I didn't see. What is she in Bridesmaids? She have like a small she, part uh, in that. She is uh, very. She's not one of the bridesmaids. She's like a, a roommate or something, and she's pretty good in that. Um, the only thing that I have seen her in is this year's uh, Pitch Perfect. Okay. Which now, obviously, I saw press screening before the movie came out. I don't read reviews before. I had no idea that this is going to be a movie that everyone likes. It's so bad. Yeah, because I'm the one who posts the reviews on the sites. Uh-huh. So I read... First off, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, I don't know what tone this is trying to strike. And then I read your review, it. and it's like, okay, I can stop thinking about it. Come to find out, because the only perspective I had was my weird take on the trailer, and then your review. Uh-huh. And it's... So, yeah, I didn't know either. Yeah, but uh, people like it. Like, people are still talking about it on websites that I read as one of the, like, funniest movies of the year. And it's so desperately unfunny because it's um it's got you know i'm uh i i think it's defenders like uh recoil at the comparisons to glee but fuck it that's why the movie got greenlit i'm sure it, whether the writers well, and the director, i'm sure it's got like, a lot of the same audience as well yeah but whether the writers and the director are like no no we had this script before glee that's not the the reason this movie i saw this movie at the arc light is because of glee because <laughs> yeah. glee exists so um so with the comparisons to glee it has all the worst aspects of glee okay and none of the good ones it has uh when i say worst aspects i basically just mean the just horrific like worse than worse than seth MacFarlane, like straining to be edgy type of humor but um not actually being funny and just using like uh falling back on like uh racial or gender stereotypes yeah. you know and like but having this smart ass attitude like it's it just because it's knowingly being racist that doesn't make it okay or 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 anti-semitic yeah uh yeah both uh, as I mentioned in my review, both Pitch Perfect and Ted, Simon yeah. uh use the word Jew as a punchline, which yeah. is really annoying. I was kind of expecting Ted to be your, your overrated, because that's one that a lot of people yeah. like as well. But I, I would rather watch Ted again than watch Pitch Perfect again, okay. uh, even though I didn't like either movie. Um, but what it doesn't have... So so Glee has that sort of like uh, trying too hard to be edgy thing. That's bad. Mm. But what Glee also has is a very... Uh, positive and humanistic heart. Uh, e- even if it sometimes, uh, sometimes generally takes narrative shortcuts to get to the big cathartic, like mm. joyous moments, uh, in ways that 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 kind of undercut the characters, it still tries for that. It still is uh, earnest and unpretentious about uh, its being celebratory. Okay. Whereas Pitch Perfect is just cynical throughout it can't stop smirking oh okay uh and it doesn't have anything to smirk about because it's horribly unfunny <laughs> that's too bad it's okay. got a, it's got a talented cast there too it does but yeah i i so far i'm not on the rebel wilson bandwagon which a lot of people are because the only thing i've seen her in i hated and i hated her in it like particularly oh, that's unfortunate yeah i liked her a lot in, in struck by lightning so yeah glee sure is uh sparking a lot of uh terrible things this year 
Um, and yet I'm loving Glee right now more than I have since season one, probably. Oh, interesting. Um, I have a friend. I have a friend who was uh, who was on Glee. Yeah, he was out of focus. Oh, okay. He played, uh, but he had he had two lines. Yeah, he, he played Eli C. Okay, what, what were his lines? Do you know, or the do you know the well he, nature uh, of the scene? He is. Uh, there's a character named Blaine uh-huh. who cheats on Kurt. Sure, sure. With Eli. Oh yeah, that's yeah, him. yeah. That's my buddy Ian. So an odd and yeah. it's weird he's like he's like i'm i'm not in focus i've got two lines and everybody found me online he's like <laughs> and it's just it's it's oh, are they mean to him like how could you break up blaine and kurt no by the way i guess we should say spoilers for season oh, four yeah. of glee but sorry that's that, that happened at the beginning of the season okay that's uh no they weren't mean to him because other people said now now everybody don't be mean to him like you were to this guy from like two seasons ago <laughs> right. or something like that so that's really funny that's <laughs> really funny to me all right so, uh so my overrated film is a movie that i do like but it is overrated and that's moonrise kingdom okay um now i I'm kind of with I, you. I, I think you like it more than I do. I do, and and I like I like uh, Wes Anderson more than you. In fact, I think the things I like about it are some of the things you don't like about it. Speaking yeah, speaking, it, speaking of struck by lightning, more so, uh, more so, which was one of my favorite moments in all of Moonrise Kingdom. And you know what? I at least respect that moment because he's being ambitious. He's trying mm-hmm. to reach outside himself. The thing that that gets me more than anything. And by the way, there's a lot to like in the movie. There's some solid performances in there. Both the kids are great. A wonderful performance by Bruce Willis. He and uh, Edward Norton find a weird type of chemistry. There's some genuine laughs in there, and there's some heartfelt moments. But, you know, I remember for uh, after a while, you would watch, or, or I would watch um, David Mamet films. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, you know, after a while, the Mamet speak... Uh, it used to be like with American Buffalo and uh, Glengarry Glen Ross and, and his plays in the eighties. They he would write how people spoke, how people of a certain class and a certain education level how they would speak. That was the idea, and then he would write how people spoke in a David Mamet play, uh-huh. and there is a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and I feel like there's a lot in West in in Moonrise Kingdom, which is this is how people are in a Wes Anderson film like B- like Bill Murray's character is 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 nothing nothing against Bill Murray but yeah. like the character is not developed like and it's almost like okay well we've got him and, and Frances McDormand they at least give her one good scene but like it's like having them call each other counselor and like be vaguely estranged but mm-hmm. then they come together at the end like that is the Wes Anderson formula but it doesn't work as well with characters that you don't develop it's almost like he cast them and that was the develop uh, the development yeah i don't um, think of those two when i think of the adults in moonrise kingdom I, I think of bruce willis and, oh, and uh, edward norton and uh, tilda swinton and there's also and there's also little things like um the main the main kid like his his parents uh get did did yes they died right yeah, yeah and then yeah. but then his like foster father played by larry, uh, larry pine that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was great. I like. He him. was good. But I um, about this. but like, you know, so the kid's parents died, and and it almost seems as that it reminded me of of Max Fisher in Rushmore, his mother having passed away. But I felt like that loss was much more developed in Rushmore, whereas this it almost seemed perfunctory, and it just it seemed like he was just kind of doing Wes Anderson's greatest hits with a couple of really great novel things like Bruce Willis's character 
mixed in. And there was enough novelty that I could enjoy it. And I still like the movie. But there are people that are like, oh, this is his best. It's like, no, not at all. Not, you're, you're far, far away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and that's the thing. You know, with you, like it ta- you, you are not necessarily prone to liking him. I think I probably am more prone to liking him than not. Um, I still think his low point is probably Life Aquatic, a movie that I still sort of liked. Um, but yeah, so it's just uh, it's a movie that I still enjoy. And I may probably revisit, and who knows? Maybe I'll see something there that I that I didn't see before. But uh, but by and large, I just thought it did not deserve the the all the praise that it has received. Okay, why don't you go first on underrated too? Okay, okay. I recently watched a comedy called The Watch, which you saw. Yeah. Okay, that movie is underrated because it is genuinely funny. I laughed several times. And they were genuine laughs. Uh, and I do think... It, the story, who gives a shit? They're trying to be Ghostbusters, like so, and like so many others, they, they mostly fail at, at capturing, at having the right balance of, like, action and comedy. And but also, like, it just, like... It has a premise I find really interesting. Yeah. And this... this uh, I feel the same way about Zombieland, which I think is is a... I don't think that's a crazy comparison for these two. They're yeah, both yeah. comedies that have supernatural. Yeah, they're high elements. concept and yeah. yeah. Um, and in both ways, I wish that the watch had taken the alien invasion, uh, like evil alien invasion part of the story more seriously, as opposed to just it being uh, something to bounce jokes off of. Yeah, which is what the zombies were in Zombieland. Instead of being like, I was never scared in Zombieland that they were actually going to get eaten. Like, at any point, really. I did assume that Woody Harrelson would die. I assumed that, yeah, like, yeah. he would die. And he at... doesn't. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. He should. He should die in the movie. And I think he's great, but... Yeah, and I thought Batman should die in Dark Knight Rises, so we all have our little opinions of what should and shouldn't happen. <laughs> We're spoiling everything. Yeah, sorry. But people um, have seen these movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I we, we know our audience at this point, and it's just like, hey, come on, I didn't see Dark Knight Rises. But I'm the only one. We didn't, we haven't, and we shouldn't. Just in case. We haven't spoiled the thing about Zombieland that is actually something you don't want spoiled for. Oh, you. absolutely. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, no, The Watch, it's, it, I, I basically, it is trying to be first and foremost a comedy. Um, and thus, I, I measure it by what you and I have talked about, how we measure dirty work. How often did I laugh? Pretty often. Um, could it have been better developed? No question. Uh, I thought Vince Vaughn was doing pretty solid stuff. Him dealing with the nesting dolls, I couldn't stop laughing. He's like, guys, there's another one in here. Guys, you you know what? Here's another one. Uh, Uh, It's the oh, I I think I actually did say in my review that it was the best. Vince Vaughn was at his most Vince Vaughniest, like in no question about in a decade, probably. Yeah, and and Richard Richard the relationship between that character and Jonah Hill's character. It's like. Let's get, let's get you inside and get some pudding in you. Yeah, yeah. and then like, yeah, and then uh, and him saying like, and I don't remember the name of uh, Jonah Hill's character, but he's just like, he's like, hey, come on, you're coming with me. And then and Jonah Hill's like, he's like, he goes, he's like, I'm so far ahead of you, it's not even funny. And just and and I like what Jonah Hill's doing. He's doing a slightly different version of himself. He's like this kind of weird militant type. Yeah. Richard Ayoade's doing good stuff. Uh, ben Stiller has a couple of. Uh, a couple good I mean he's mostly the straight man but he does yeah. it pretty well he doesn't overplay things which is a nice change of pace and, you've got, and I can't Billy Crudup is delightful <laughs> um, 
now I, I'm drawing a blank because it's been so long. I haven't seen it since before it came out, since the press screening. Who plays Ben Stiller's wife? Because it's an actress I really like. Oh, hell. Oh, it's um, Rosemary DeWitt. Rosemary DeWitt, yeah. I, I, I love her, and she's completely... Yeah, they try no, to... Yeah. They, they give to them some, some like dramatic scenes, and that's in a comedy, which is unfortunate, because then it's just like, yeah, yeah, the woman shows up, and it becomes a drama. Um, but, right. like... Uh, so I find that I think that's unfortunate, but uh, and they try to bring her in at the end as far as like action, but they don't really. So that's a shame. I do think uh, Will Forte is great. He is and great then, too. And I don't for life me I don't remember the name of of his partner, but that guy has also been on Community, oh. and he's just a real good stone faced actor. And it was nice to see. Uh, it was nice to see friend of the show Johnny Pemberton get killed by other friend of the show Doug Jones. Um, so that that was delightful. <laughs> Again, a spoiler and. Uh, um. So yeah, so it's it's not that great, and that's the thing. Yeah, I and I, as far as my list, I like my overrated movie more than I like my underrated movie, <laughs> but I still liked the underrated movie quite a bit. Well, here's okay. I'll go my under. Okay, well, if we're being honest, I think the most underrated movie of the year is Cloud Atlas, but that's going ah, that was mine, and then I remembered the watch. Um, but since Cloud Atlas is already going to be my top ten, the one that I'll throw a bone here a bone to here one that came out right at the end of the year is jack reacher okay yeah and i think i mean I, obviously i think the people who uh, you know uh, critics i mean i know i like a lot of them but a lot of critics as we've talked about have an anti-genre bias to begin with i think the fact that jack reacher came out amidst all the oscar like award movies mm. made that gen that john genre bias uh a little stronger okay. um and when I say genre bias, obviously there are exceptions, but the thing about Jack Reacher is that it's an action film that isn't conspicuously, like, artistically ambitious or conspicuously stylish. Although, actually, I mean, if you, uh, there's a, uh, it's a, it's an incredibly smart uh, movie um, that definitely has some uh, strong artistic choices. I mean, you should, if you've seen the way of the gun, you should know the director, Christopher McQuarrie likes to make artsy choices, but he, yeah, but it's he, weird how he is somehow more stripped down and more, more ornate at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, and in both, in both movies, although, I mean, Jack Reacher, I've said this before, like people who like, like way of the gun will find things like that to like in Jack Reacher, but people who don't like way of the gun because of how like pretentious it can be, or like, you know, how, uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Um, it starts with the P. I know the word. Anyway, but like ominous, uh, portentous. Portent, yeah. Yes. Um, it can be, none of that is in Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher is a fun movie. Okay. Um, and, uh, it, but, but it, it, it is, it, it looks, it's, it's shot, uh, beautifully, but not, you know, again, I use the word conspicuously. It's, it's not, uh, trying to draw your attention to the way that it's, that it's photographed or put together, uh, but it 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 looks great. Um, Tom Cruise is uh, a badass. Um, the 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 action scenes are, are are well choreographed in a way the old school way where you can tell what's going on at all times. There's um, a, as we talked about with Amy Nicholson, there's a great car chase, one of you know probably the best car chase of the year, um, and uh, it's also really funny. I'm going to tell you. I think I told you this. I'm going to tell the listener just because I'm going to give away a joke just to maybe change your mind about the movie and hopefully get you into the movie theater. He, uh, a woman he talks to says 
that mentions that she works at the auto parts store. That's what she says. Later, when he's trying to follow, trying to find her again, he because he doesn't live in Philadelphia where the movie takes place or mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. I can't remember one of those two where the movie takes place. He doesn't live. He doesn't not familiar. So he asks the lawyer that he's working with who lives there, Rossman Pike. Um, he was like, if someone said they worked at someone in this neighborhood said they worked at the auto parts store, what would that mean? Like, where? What's the first auto parts store you would go to? And so the next shot is them pulling into an auto parts store that has a big sign on the top the name of the auto parts store is default audio part auto parts <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of sense of humor the movie has yeah, uh, yeah so yeah check check out jack reacher okay now i think i'm going to go first on honorable mentions and i'll continue to go first into the top 10 so that we can fi- finish with your number one so uh my honorable mentions this is what i mentioned uh earlier about how some of these are going to uh that may be thought of as 2013 films um so i'm gonna the first one of those is uh uh pablo lorraine's no starring gail garcia bernal which just came out as of the recording yesterday what is its theatrical release um but it does by my rules qualify as a 2012 film um, and it's uh, it's fantastic. Well, now, we don't spend a lot of time on the honorable mentions, but um, it I should say it takes place in 1988 and, ha- and has to do with television commercials or television political ads. And he shoots sections of the film, uh, Pablo Lorraine does, uh, on with the same cameras that would have been used at the time. Um, so it looks like grainy video, but the upside of that is that it seamlessly works in actual news footage of the time nice uh, of what's going on so i mean you really don't know the difference at, at any point it's uh really really cool reading your review it really sounded very interesting yeah it's very it's very cool very good movie um next honorable mention is paranorman uh it's a great movie for um if if you were or are a weird kid it's great for that um Frank and Weenie was also actually very good, I think, this year. Uh, it suffered from, in my mind at least, suffered from coming out after Paranorman, which was better in mind a lot of the same territory. But um, I think if if you were in any way like a weird kid, an outcast, maybe a little bit morbid like I was, mm-hmm. uh, it will really resonate and it's very funny and it gets... Have you seen it? Yeah, you yes. seen, I, I've asked you that so many times. Uh it also ends in a place like it goes places with its ending that you don't see coming because it's a funny movie mostly a kid's movie and then it gets like really like uh huge like operatic cosmic well, by the end of it yeah and what's interesting is you know i mentioned uh, struck by lightning earlier uh paranorman actually has the perspective that struck by lightning lacks about this idea of feeling entitled to take revenge, entitled to treat others like shit, uh, whatever. Yes, exactly. But it has a much more mature attitude about yeah. it. Uh, I'll move on to Farewell, My Queen, which is a film by Benoit Jacot, um, who did, who's done, he's done a number of films, including uh, a film from the mid-90s, I think, called The Single Girl, which... Um, People should totally check out. Uh, it, it stars um, Virginie Ledoyen, whom American audiences, I guess, first met in The Beach, which was 2000. Is that right? 2000 or 2001? I think 2000. I think 2000, yeah. Um, 
and uh, this. So I was excited for it, Feral My Queen. You know what? I'm going to take a bre- uh, step back and talk about the year uh, as a whole for a second here. Okay. Um, because I've only toward the end of the year, long after a lot of other people did, realized that 2012 was a good year for movies. Um, I'm not saying it was. It's going to like be a record breaker, but it's a very good year. And I think part of the reason that I felt that way for so long, Fair and Light Queen came out in in America at least in July. I remember. I remember because the uh, review went up the weekend of comic-con um and other than the avengers like the first half half of 2012 2012 i saw pretty much no films that i really loved whereas here in 2013 it's not february is not even older over we've already had stoker which is mm-hmm. awesome uh, or like, i've already seen stoker it comes out uh in a week or so um so I already have like a great film for twenty, the first great film of twenty thirteen. Mm-hmm. So Feral My Queen, I think, um, made such an impression on me because I felt like it had been so long since I'd seen something that made an impression on me. Hmm. So that's part of the reason why it goes there. But it's also it's it's really great. It's a it's a very um, uh, I saw it as a very political film. For those who don't know, it takes place um, inside Versailles the day of and the two days after the storming of the Bastille, but it never leaves Versailles. Um, so, so you're seeing the, the court, you're seeing the, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The aristocratic people, but, uh, reacting to the uprising of the poor people, but you're seeing it through the eyes of one of the servants. Mm. And so it, uh, it's the the way that paranormal is is not reductive about like uh, things. This is not reductive about class roles because the the lead played by uh, Leah Sidhu um, is she's poor, but also all the people that she she lives at Versailles and all the people that she associates with are very wealthy. Mm-hmm. So her like she's on both sides of the story. Her 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 sympathies lie in both in both camps yeah. and I, I think that's a really interesting approach it also had diane kruger plays um marie antoinette and the aforementioned virginie ledoyen uh who gives uh, well, I, we'll talk in a couple weeks i'm not sure if this will come because i haven't solidified my list but one of the best supporting performances of the year is by virginie ledoyen as uh i can't remember her name she was a real like countess who it was rumored was having a uh, lesbian love affair with marie antoinette mm-hmm. and this movie just uh, it makes that more than rumors it is it is true in this movie okay. uh, and she's fantastic so uh back to honorable mentions uh the avengers we'll talk about later i'm sure um and then final honorable mention is spike lee's bad 25 which was uh, and this will get to th- i'm taking longer than i wanted in my honorable mentions but because i'm talking about larger things the other thing about 2012 that I felt toward the end of the year here is that I, I, I thought 2011 was a fantastic year. And we had things like Take Shelter, like Tree of Life, like uh, The Future, um, movies that I felt were that really impacted me intellectually in a lot of ways and felt sort of uh, weighty and big and, and, and um, daring in that way. And 2012, I think, <clears throat> and this would become apparent in my top 10, was the, uh, with most of the choices at least, uh, the year that I remembered 
how much fucking fun movies are. Uh, and Bad 25 is an exuberant documentary. If I had seen it in the theater, I may have been tempted to stand up and dance in the aisle because, uh, but it's also very heavy. It's, it's over two hours long. Uh, he, it's, it's for those, uh, I keep saying for those who don't know, Spike Lee, it's the 25th anniversary of Michael Jackson's album, bad mm-hmm. 2012 was. Um, and he, this documentary is the story of bad and it's broken into 12 or whatever, however many tracks there are on the album, each one gets its own section. So he's talking specifically about each different song, but also about um, how that song reflects on where Michael Jackson was, where society was, where culture was. You know, they talk to, they talk for the bad video, they talk to Martin Scorsese and, um, oh, what's his name? He wrote Clockers, Richard Price, is that his name? Um, who wrote the story. I don't know if you've seen the bad video. It's, you know, like a lot of Michael Jackson videos, it's more than just the song. It's a whole short film. Right. Uh, and it was um, where people met, uh, where the world was introduced to Wesley Snipes uh, was in that video. And um, Richard Price uh, jokes, joking about, like, uh, b- the bigger issue of, like, um, Michael Jackson and something we saw with Barack Obama in 2008, like, people saying, is he really black enough? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? You know, um, and 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 how silly that is, but also taking seriously that this is an issue that people talk about and talked about with Michael Jackson and Richard Price jokes that Michael Jackson hired him, an asthmatic Jew, and Martin Scorsese, an asthmatic Italian, to turn him into a homie. <laughs> I use the word that Richard Price used there, yes. homie. Um, uh, but so it was, it's really smart. It fucking I, I mentioned it's over two hours. It fucking moves. I don't know if you've seen Spike Lee documentaries. He doesn't. I think I've said this on the podcast before. I saw Four Little uh, Girls. It's great. Yeah. Spike Lee does not get the credit, get talked about as a great do- documentarian um, as much as he should because he's one of the greatest documentarians working today. And the, and, and, and Bad 25 just flies for two and a half hours or not, a little over two hours. It, 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 you can't stop watching it. One of the shortest, shortest feeling movies that I watched this year. There might be a uh, an episode in this, but it's interesting. You know, when you talk to to people, uh, m- some people, and sometimes I'm included in this, about narrative filmmakers who then sometimes delve into documentary. Sure, like and Scorsese ask, does. Like Scorsese, like a Werner Herzog, although mm-hmm. these days he's known more for his documentaries than yeah, his narrative films. He is. But, um, you know, when you you do that, and, and you ask somebody, okay, so... Like what Scorsese films have you seen? Let's let's go with that. And I'm not asking you. Like you ask yeah. somebody that, and they start mentioning, and then they they bypass you know documentaries that he's made. My voyage to Italy is that yeah his, yeah, and just like, and it's like oh yeah, there's these as well, but those don't really count. Yeah yeah, that's it's true. A, it's a weird attitude, and well, one that I, I myself occasionally have. Yeah. It's just like well those it, it almost feels like it almost feels like when an actor has a rock band. You know, it's just like, it's like, well, this is what we know you primarily yeah, for. Yeah. And the more you insist on this, it was just like, well, See, it's a filmmaker. You, they can do whatever they want. What you're saying is 30 Seconds to Mars is actually a really good band. <laughs> That's Jared Leto's band. And they oh. are terrible. Oh. They are well, as terrible as Jared Leto is. Um, <laughs> as a uh, as a person or as an actor? Uh, as an actor. I mean, I, I don't want to. I hear stories about him as a person, but that's all. That's all alleged. Yeah. You yeah. know, we are uh, not going to disparage Jared Leto. I don't think he's a bad actor. Um I'm not a fan. 
Uh, I mean, I like him on my so-called life, but uh, that's about it. You know, he uh, does. He does. He's. Uh, he is. Uh, I would venture to say guilty of the thing that I say so much about Sean Penn. Man, he's he's showing. He really wants you to know he's working hard. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that annoying. Um, well, uh, with Spike Lee, it's almost it's even tougher with the documentary thing because um, you get into that. Um, theater versus television thing because most of his documentaries when the levees broke for little girls made for hbo yeah and bad 25 was actually i think uh, i don't know if it was hbo but it was uh i don't think uh, my understanding is that he didn't make it with a theatrical release in mind i think it just yeah. turned out to be so good <laughs> um that and there's realize, you know like, there's a market for anything michael yeah. jackson related yeah. uh, and that's i mean that's why it was, it was essentially made as a he was contracted to make it as sort of a commercial for the album being 25 years old. I think there's probably a deluxe reissue or something. And then he just ran with it and made an amazing documentary. That sounds, that sounds great. And I, and I believe it is in my possession at the moment. Um, you've lent it to me, but I haven't gotten around to watching it yet. Uh, it's great. So, um, all right, your honorable mentions and then we'll get into the top 10 list. Okay. Uh, arbitrage or arbitrage. We're told, wait, Maybe, I can't remember if this is a comment on the website or someone emailed me personally. Okay. Arbitrage. Arbitrage. Okay. That's what I was told by someone who works in a line of, has a, a line of work where they actually use that word. That's interesting. Arbitrage. Um, okay. So uh, that's uh, Nicholas. He said Nicholas, rhymes with entourage. In many ways. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, so it's Nicholas Jarecki, right? Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that's how you it's say It's one it. of the Jareckis. Yeah. I, I think it's Nicholas. And so... Um, yeah, I liked this movie uh, quite a bit. I think, you know, everything that people say is is right. Like, great performance by Richard Gere. I, I think I just like the way the movie's put together. It's a very, it is at times a very cold movie, but it is, it is a drama first and foremost, but there are many suspenseful elements to it. And it does a really good job of just, just really just making you really tense a lot of the time. Uh, but more than anything... I like any movie that effortlessly, uh-huh. without even really realizing it, and you and, and you and I have talked about it before. Uh, the the film realizes it, but the audience doesn't realize. Like, it effortlessly gets us sympathizing with somebody we never would otherwise. Yeah. Uh, if you hear about this person in the news or a friend of a friend, you'd be like, "That guy is an asshole." By the way, it also doesn't let him off the hook. Um, but I'll say a couple things about it real quick. Um, which which I will also say this about um, about Stoker. Uh, if you haven't seen the trailer for Stoker, or if you haven't seen the trailer for Arbitrage, uh, do not. Um, I am a. Uh, I, I, I I'd say that I don't care as much about spoilers, but it do, it does get kind of ridiculous. Um, the things these trailers uh, give away. So um, like. There's again, if you haven't seen the trailer for Arbitrage, don't. Um, but yeah, there's th- there's a thing that the trailer sells as being like the inciting incident of the film, but that actually happens closer to the halfway point and is a a surprise. It's not quite. It's, it's, it's probably about forty, like forty minutes in. But yeah, like, yeah. Eh, something happened in Psycho forty minutes in that you wouldn't want to <laughs> give away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not a, certainly isn't a development like that, but you don't. 
you certainly don't think that's what it, what's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, things are already like there's already conflict with this guy's life. It's yeah. al- things are already in motion. And then yeah. the thing happens that like just explodes that just makes it 10 times more intense. And it is one, you know, people do talk about it primarily in terms of Richard Gere's performance and the movie is good in general. Like there's a lot there. It's not just built around one performance. There's a lot going on. But his performance is great. It's great enough that I it, it causes me to think back on him as an actor. And I realize, you know, when people talk about the best actors of, like, his generation, I'm not sure. Who would you say his contemporaries are? Oh, I don't know. I mean... I don't know. I can't... I, I can't... Uh, Mickey Rourke? I guess. What? Sure. I, I guess mean, so. I mean... When did we first start to know who... Richard Gere was a society. Late eighties? No, oh no, early eighties. Early yeah, yeah, yeah. American Gigolo and Yeah, yeah. yeah. Early eighties. Okay, so maybe like a William Hurt. Yeah, there you go. That's um, a good one. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Uh but of course if you were to talk <clears throat> maybe because, you know, William Hurt is an Oscar winner or whatever, but like and maybe some of the things that he's the movies that he's chosen, uh, you know, people would say, Oh, William Hurt is one of the best actors of his generation. No one would ever really say that about Richard Gere, and that is unfortunate because he does deliver. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it's because he's associated with those um, awful, uh, uh, like Pretty Woman and Runaway Bride. Gary, those awful yeah. Gary Marshall, Gary Marshall films. He's yeah. in one of the holiday movies, right? Like either New Year's Eve or Valentine's Day, oh, or both know. of them. Maybe I don't remember. I don't but know. But like you know, I, you and I aren't big fans of Chicago, but I think he's pretty good in that. Um, I like him in uh, Unfaithful. Oh, he's great in Unfaithful. And just yeah. and of course, I always. I, can't let Richard Gere come up without mentioning Internal Affairs. Mike Figgis' Internal Affairs, which you haven't seen. but Which I haven't seen. Uh, anyone who hasn't seen it should, should uh, move that up the list. Yeah, so he's just he's a very dependable actor, and the film really uh, really uh, reminded me of that. Uh, so the next okay, one so is... so I'm going to let you, like you did for me, I'm going to let you talk as opposed to... Okay. Because if we keep having a back and forth about everything, it's going to be yeah, yeah. our top 15 instead of our top 10. Okay, so um, next up is Holy Motors, which we will talk about later. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that is Life, Life of Pi, which we will yep. talk about later. So, all right, saving time already. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then comes uh, Skyfall, which is oh, a movie that, that I uh, I figured I was going to like, um, and I liked it a lot more. It's probably my favorite Sam Mendes film. Um, have I seen them all? Yes, I have. So have I seen think Jarhead? I have seen Jarhead. I never saw Jarhead. Yeah. I think that's it's, the only one I've missed. It's good. It's interesting. It's, Besides it's, Skyfall. It's a very, it's a fascinating, it's a film of very fascinating choices. Not the least of which is just the fact that it got made at all. <laughs> um, but uh, and I don't say that in a in the pejorative. I mean, like, it's an interesting movie that you would not expect anyone to ever green light. But, um, but yeah, Skyfall. It's just, it's you know, it's very well written. It's very well acted. It really like, it's, it seems like more like a John Le Carre, uh novel. Is that how you say that? I don't know. It's how I say it. Okay. John Le, Le Carre? Le Carre? Sure. I think that it would be Le Carre. Um, but it, has, it almost has like a spy who came in from the cold quality. Admittedly, like there's a lot of action in it, you know, but it has more in common with that and like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy than mm. other James Bond movies, uh, at least as far as its I, tone. I, again, I said I wouldn't. I love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, that movie from last year so much that you just saying it made like my spine tingle. I was like, I got to watch that again. All right. I think it was enough. my number four of the year last year. Yeah. And you know, as time has gone on, because I remember being like wanting to like it more than I did, but as time has gone on, like the stuff that I don't like about it has kind of faded. Mm-hmm. The stuff I did like uh, has come to the fore. But um, 
but yeah so i think i just like there's a mournful quality to it there's you know characters are are talking about they're talking about like getting older and like what not merely judy dench but also james bond himself is talking about getting older and like can he still do this and does he even want to still do so this? this is essentially the star trek star trek 2 the wrath of khan of james bond movies yeah uh, yeah, you mean by far the best one? <laughs> well, yeah, I Probably, mean both yeah. of those things, yeah. Um, and a great performance by uh, Javier Bardem, who can find ways to can find ways to invigorate a role that you feel like. I mean, just that character on the page, just the character on the page, like he's fine, but you get like uh, an interesting actor like Javier Bardem in there. Solid stuff. Ray Fiennes does good work. Uh, ben Wyshaw as Q is good. Um, so it's just a, it's very much worth seeing. And I know you don't see James Bond movies, but I think you would enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, I've, tur- I've also heard it turns into Straw Dogs at the end. Uh, so I like Straw that. Dogs slash Home Alone slash, <laughs> yeah, any number of things. Yeah, it, it has a weird third act that I'm not sure I'm totally on you board think about with, it, but I'm okay with. Home Alone is essentially the, like... Uh, crazy Bond gadget version of it's Straw like Dogs. A, yeah, it's like a MacGyver Straw Dogs if <laughs> yeah. MacGyver was a kid. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so... Uh, uh, I was going to say something about it. I'm oh, sorry. Well. Uh, and so last uh, is uh, Joe Wright's uh, Anna oh, Karenina. I know what I was going to say. Okay, I'll go back. Yes. Um, and this isn't even important. I'm sorry. I was going to say that I was reflecting recently on how we're all just used to the fact that it's pronounced Rafe Fines now. Yeah. Like, we don't even think about it. Yeah. It's spelled Ralph. Yeah, but... It like, should be Ralph. And I remember, like, at the time of, like, the English patient, people were, were talking about that. His name is Ralph. He says Rafe. I guess we have to call him that. That's weird. Now, we don't even comment on it anymore. Yeah. I guess we all just accepted it. It's sort of like the first time I had an Altoid, it really lived up to its, like, curiously strong yeah. thing. You know, like, it like... It it puckered my face all up. It was very strong. Yeah. Now, I need two or three Altoids to even feel it. <laughs> well, it's kind of a gateway mint too. Yeah. Like it's uh, maybe I should... now all these other mints have not all of them, but a lot of them. Like they're like, oh, we can beat that. Right, right, and so yeah, you get yeah. somewhere. It's just like, ah, oh, this is like it's burning my mouth now. I think maybe I need to take a month off for mints to build my tolerance back. There up. you go. And then re-experience that first time Altoid. <laughs> feeling <laughs> all right i'm sorry anna so, karenina okay yeah so um next up is uh joe writes anna karenina a movie that i i had heard mixed things about going in um but man did i did i love it it's it's ambitious it's ballsy there's a visionary quality to it um you know because we were talking about uh zach snyder being a visionary and does that term apply i think it does apply to joe Wright. i may not always like the movies he makes but man he does have a clear vision he's got interesting ideas i think a lot of great performances i think Kira knightley does great work i think uh jude law is doing great work uh matthew mcfadden is is a lot of fun in it um uh, kelly mcdonald um and it's just and it's it's an interesting conceit and if it were my top 10 i would talk more about that conceit uh <laughs> which like there there's a theatrical quality to it in every possible sense of the word like part of the story takes place in a theater as it, like as if this were all artifice and mm-hmm. but it still will go into those scenes it'll push further into those scenes and treat them as real and uh there's and i know that I, some I also, people don't like that but i i liked it quite a i like that and i felt like it wasn't consistent enough with it one of the things i really like is that 
if you're thinking, if you were to do the metaphor of the upper and lower classes, you would put the upper classes higher and the lower classes lower. Yeah. But in this one, the upper classes all exist on the stage, and the lower classes are way up in the rafters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was a nice inversion of your expectations. Yeah. Uh, I like that. I think my main problem with it, uh, apart, I, I can uh, deal with what I felt to be inconsistencies with the conceit. My main problem of it is something you apparently liked, which is Kira Knightley. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think Kira Knightley, I've never been a fan, really. Um, I think, and she turns Anna Karenina from a story about a woman who feels so passionately and loves so passionately that it destroys her life to a woman who destroys her life by just being really stupid and childish. That That's how I feel. Now felt one about could her make the argument that they could be seen as one and the same, something you and, and I regularly talk about with the, the story of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some and, people say like, you know, one person's like unbridled romantic passion. Another person be like, grow up. Yeah. And I think, um, Baj Luhrmann and Franco Zeffirelli, uh, both, got that and i don't know that maybe the maybe the blame is with joe wright but i think he's a smarter guy i and maybe, and maybe but i don't know i don't bring my past prejudices against Kira knightley to the story but i i didn't like her performance your your past pride and prejudices <laughs> um I, that's a decent movie and I, I like her in that too i i like her in a dangerous method um i yeah. like i like her in bend it like beckham so you do like her it sounds like i guess but even in movies that I don't know, but I don't I don't love, I don't know. Ben, or a dangerous method was really, I don't know. She was uh, she was really committed there, and it worked. Yeah, and I think I thought she was committed in this as well. Uh, specifically, just this idea of like, more than anything, I got that she was like really pained to do these things, and she was, and she was childish. But like, it's the first time that she's like gotten, that she's like she. You know what? She's like a teenager. She was like we all were when we were teenagers, where we finally like feel like uh, we're we're our own person now. So we're kind of defiant of our parents, even though we fail to and we fail to recognize how much our parents actually love us. That's how she is with Jude Law, and so, mm-hmm. but that doesn't change the fact that she still really is in love with this other guy and all that. And so, like I I bought it. I didn't necessarily like her character all the time, but I sympathized with her. I sympathized with everyone involved, um, and so. Uh, and just and just visually and artistically, I just thought it was really fascinating. I will comment briefly on what I think the conceit was about, or at least my interpretation okay. of it. Um, Anna Karenina has been adapted many, many times. Uh-huh. And so, really, if he was going to do just a straightforward adaptation, then what everyone's going to say is just like, okay, here's this guy's version. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to be approaching it with that distance anyway. So he sort of embraces that and says, okay, we're going to, we all know we're putting on a production anyway. The audience knows it. Critics know it. We, the artists know it. So we might as well embrace the fact that it is a production. But still, like we, it's sort of like hanging, hanging a lantern on it, but then still allowing the power of the story to still bring us into it, which is why I was okay with I, it being somewhat inconsistent. I like that quite Seem, a bit. Seeming inconsistent. I like that quite a bit because the only interpretation I had thought of or, could, or heard, um, which makes sense but seems a little trite, is the idea that someone who is a socialite whose job is to essentially, uh, whose role in life is to, uh, pun intended, uh, is is to go to parties and balls and yeah. uh, and put on a show is essentially always performing. 
that's what I had heard before, and that I think that checks out. It just doesn't seem yeah that deep to me. Yeah, I feel like there's I, I, that's a perfectly reasonable interpretation, and I think there's probably a part of it as well. But at the same time, I do think that there's. I think it's more than that. I think it's even just a common a commentary on like not a criticism, but a commentary on when when you know in 2012 it's like yeah we're doing an adaptation of Anna Karenina what what could we possibly bring to it <laughs> you know and then it's just like all right so everyone you're aware of it so let's just do this and so i like that okay all right we've, here we go we've reached the end of our first hour of the podcast seriously yeah so this is probably going to book will be about 3 hours um <laughs> No, we I'm you, try you have, and, you have to be try out. and zoom through mine. And you have to be out of here in 90 minutes, so... Uh, I, I'm i fine, actually. I don't oh, need okay. to be out here at any particular time. All right, so I'll start with my number 10, which is another uh, of the ones, and not the final, that could be considered a 2013 film, because um, that also just came out the same... was released the same day as, no, it's uh, Abbas Karastami's Like Someone in Love, mm-hmm. which is uh, Abbas Karastami's... Uh, Iranian director who worked in Iran for uh, his entire life until his previous film, Certified Copy, which he made in Italy, and then this one is made he made in in Tokyo, completely in Japanese. Um, and by the way, he made. Did you see Certified Copy? I never did. No. Yeah, he makes it in Italy with a French character and a British character <laughs> who occasionally go who go back and forth between French and, and English. Yeah, like, I'm sure Italian is spoken as well. Yes, it is. Uh, I love that. Uh, my hat's off to him. The fact that he can, in his, I don't know if he speaks Japanese. I would almost have to assume that he does, because like someone in love is a movie about people talking. Yeah, like it is. Uh, it just goes from sort of almost conversational tableau to tableau, where um, the first shot of the movie, which I talk about in my in my review of it. Uh, is you're seeing a shot, a completely static shot of a cafe, and you're hearing a woman talking. Mm-hmm. And then you realize you're only hearing half the conversation. And then you realize, oh, she must be on the phone. And then you realize you look down at the table in front of her a- a- in the shot, and you realize, oh, this is her point of view. We're mm-hmm. seeing from her point of view. Uh, but it, But it goes on a long time of us not seeing her and the yeah. camera not moving and that's um something that happens and eventually someone else sits down across from her and then uh, he switches to the pretty standard like switching back and forth over the shoulder type shots but still um as much as, as standards they are they're gloriously and precisely composed shots which is something that happens consistently throughout the movie uh and then you see that sort of thing played out over and over again where it's just he 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 picks a shot that he likes, introduces it to a space, yeah. like, like like an apartment or a car, um, and then picks a shot he likes, a couple of shots he likes, and then sticks to those for scenes scenes of just dialogue that go on longer than you than we are trained to expect. Yes. Uh but uh and you're saying yes because of certified copy is like that. Yeah, right? and well because you haven't so, seen like someone in love. No, but I but I saw um 
close up as well mm-hmm. and just and he does and and i'm also saying yes because in the same way that ed mcmahon would say yes because <laughs> i love that and yeah. you'll see by the way you'll see a few instances of those in like in my top 10 as well uh but if that makes it feel like a slog it's not like this like bad 25 this movie went by like it was over and i was like i i thought we were maybe a little over an hour in but mm-hmm. it was it's like an hour and 45 minute movie uh and it, it really really moves along uh it's it's just a real uh, argument for just classic filmmaking. It's not, it's not adorned. It's not done up with like uh, you know. I keep using this word conspicuous today, but like it's not conspicuous in its lensing or its or its lighting or its editing. It just like Abbas Kirstami is saying, we can still I can still do things with just a camera and a set and actors that will uh, that are exhilarating. And, you know, it's this actually um, I was going to have this conversation in a couple movies. OK, but I'll, I'll have it now and then I'll just I'll just say, hey, remember when I said that thing? Apply it. Now. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was uh, I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about the Oscars and I was thinking about uh, best editing. And how you and I rather cynically, though I think pretty realistically, often say best editing usually equals most editing. Like that's usually how it goes. Uh, best director almost always goes with somebody who has taken on something rather ambitious mm. uh, and pretty big in scope. Um, not always, but often. Um, and so, like somebody, yeah, who who you who utilizes every single aspect of of filmmaking as much as possible. And I don't mean to say that in a, in a negative way, but like that's what they. And we think when we think of like the great directors now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think of of like like the auteurs, the ones that we really champion is like the best. Like we think of like directors that we are always seeing their choices on screen. Mm-hmm. Someone like and uh, uh, Abbas Kiarostami, um, and like some other directors that I'll talk about later. Um, it, they do illustrate that it is possible to feel the director's hand without even knowing it. It's possible for him to make a choice by not making a choice. Mm-hmm. And it's possible that, like, to have total control over a film without being like, cut here, cut uh-huh. here, cut here. You know? In fact, choosing not when to not cut is, uh, is a major choice and one could say a major risk. And yeah. so, like, and it's something that, you know, uh, some of this has come out uh, of you know personal reflection as i uh will sometimes like get mad at myself that the stuff that appeals to me which is usually like character um and acting and dialogue uh it's just like ah that's that's not inherently filmic that's theatrical <laughs> you know it's like i should just go review plays i shouldn't do you know it comes from that but it's just like yeah but there are a lot of movies that have actors and dialogue and strong characters and and film can enhance that and mm-hmm. then that can enhance the film and like I don't have to be ashamed of this thing and a director like great directors mm-hmm. who are not because there are plenty there are plenty of films that emphasize a good performance and then you don't see the director anywhere yeah. and that's that's okay too but like there are directors who you know this is their film at all times by what they do what by what they don't do and but the whole time they're still pointing to the characters and saying look at them mm-hmm. um, Mike Lee is an example there's a perfect example in Like Someone in Love that's both an example of both keeping the focus on the characters and um, and in 
making a choice by not making a choice. There's a scene where the um, young woman who is, I guess, the main character. There are three main characters, but the main mm-hmm. main character is talking to the older man, who's one of the other main characters. And they're talking about, they're in his apartment, they're talking about a painting that hangs on his wall. They talk at length about it. Mm-hmm. The shot is either on her or on him. They talk at length about the painting, and you don't see it until well after they've t- moved on. Ah. And even then, you only see the painting in a shot that's moving. It's panning her, following her to the bathroom. Like, after they've completed this entire conversation. Because uh, to do so, to look at the painting would break the spell that, that he's yeah. that he set up. This rhythm of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's an awesome, awesome choice. Yeah. Uh, oh boy! All right, number ten for you. Number ten for me is uh, Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, good. Um, is this going to save us some time? Uh, no, because it's not on my top oh, ten. Okay. Uh, as great as it is, that's okay. what I'm talking about. It's a great year. This uh, I, I love guess, this movie. Didn't make my top ten or honorable mention. I guess so. I don't know what I what I what I require to say a movie uh, a year is great. Like I don't consider this year to be great. I don't. I didn't consider last year to be great. Like um, maybe maybe I'm just. It's like. To me, the last great year is 2007. Um, oh. Well, see, here's here's what it was for me, and this is something I got from our uh, friend of the show and contributor to the website, part of the BP family, Scott Nye, with last year. My number eleven film of last year. I don't remember what it is now. But my number eleven film of last year could, in my mind, conceivably, if it came out in a different year, be the best movie of the year. And, yeah, and I think. Yeah. Uh, I think that's not. I mean, Bad Twenty Five is not that. It's not as much as I loved it. Yeah. Not best movie of the year quality uh, this year. So I guess I would say I liked last year better. But I still think it's a very good year. Yeah, I guess. I guess like if I were to take Anna Karenina and throw it into let's say two thousand two, uh-huh. which I think is a pretty weak year by and large. Um, like there's some like that. That is a good chance of breaking easily top five, <laughs> if not number yeah. one. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Um, okay, but yeah, so Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, I feel like I don't want to say too much about it, not because I don't I want to spoil anything, but like it's all been said uh-huh. at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I loved it. I loved the way that it was uh, that it was put together. Um, I like it, it was an interesting choice to focus in on one character and have it be told from one person's point of view. Mm-hmm. Now, one could make the argument. I was talking with. Uh, BP writer Kyle Anderson about this the other day that like the climactic raid um, Bigelow spends a lot of time on it it's wonderfully put together Mm -hmm. um, but that perhaps it is like it's so good that I'm okay with it being there but that perhaps it is misguided to spend so much time on it away from our character because she's done such a good job of establishing that this is this woman's story. Right. You know, like, but also this is the thing she's been building toward. I know. I think that's the argument in favor of including it is that it's, it's what she's been trying to get to happen for most of the movie. I forget. Does it, I don't think it does, but I might, I I might be wrong. Uh, I don't totally recall. Does it cut to her listening? I think it does. I think it does. Okay. And I feel like maybe a few more shots of, of like her listening or like a shot or two of like her sitting and listening while no one is talking. And like really drawing that out because to her, like to when we're seeing them, we know what's happening all the time. She doesn't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so emphasizing her general ignorance and that level of suspense for her, I think would be uh, pretty interesting. But that's what at the I, same time, we also know what happens. So yeah, that knowledge yeah. can kind of undercut any suspense that might happen there. But you, you um, touched on the thing 
that uh that I like so much about it um uh I guess in terms of theme um or not theme maybe motif but basically the idea is that uh that comes up in the movie that that um there's no such thing as certainty in this line of work yeah uh which means that for all the I mean her her job title is analyst for all the analyzing that goes on all the meetings and discussions at some point after all the facts are compiled, yeah. someone is going to have to make a decision, like not not add up a column of numbers, but make a personal decision. Yeah. And often it's her. And I, and and I I liked that the movie was able, as much as she is the hero of the story, she is um, sometimes uh, acting rash. She yeah. is often arrogant. Yeah. Um, and we've seen her maybe not specifically participate in but not have any qualms about torture yeah uh there's a lot of a lot of things about her we we don't like uh or 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 that are or that make her judgment questionable but the truth is there's something or multiple things about every single person in the world uh who's who, who does that and they have to at some point someone has to make a decision which leads to my favorite line in the movie okay which is um a scene that doesn't have Jessica Chastain in it. Okay. It's a scene, an incredibly brief scene between James Gandolfini and John Barrymore after they've just let it, left a meeting. And Jess, a, I, I know what you're talking and about. James Gandolfini says, like, after she's presented her um, case, says, what do you think of her? And John Barrymore says, well, she's smart. And he says, we're all smart, Jason. Or whatever. I don't think it's Jason. Yeah. Justin. It's something like that. Yeah. Uh, we're all smart. Like, yeah, we wouldn't be on this floor of the building in that room. It, like, yeah there's there's more to what we do than just being smart and well i, I and think that's really really interesting it's a it's kind of a, a laugh line sort of yeah, but it's yeah. also delivered with such a world weariness and i'll get to a world weary james gandolfini later on in the episode <laughs> but uh it's delivered with such a world weariness it's just like this idea i'm reminded of the fog of war when it's just like smart is not going to fix this right smart is not going to save us and that's something that i that i love about the film i also like yeah, her perform. I don't. I I feel like I should talk more about her performance in that character, but she's great. She's very driven. She's flawed. She's all of that. But one thing that I like, I will bring up. This is a weird comparison. Uh, okay, so the Passion of the Christ. Um, <laughs> what I found interesting about that movie was, oddly enough, given my beliefs, it was not Jesus, and I think that's a flaw with the film. But um, all the other people, all mm-hmm. the, uh, you know tertiary characters and stuff um some of them play bigger roles like jason clark's part who he's wonderful and i I love him um but then like james gandolfini uh and uh and then like one of the uh one of the other uh analysts who winds up getting killed uh and then and i won't say that actresses yeah i won't say who it is but um (laughs) i just said yeah only one of the women in the movie so i think i just gave it away um also edgar ramirez is great yeah oh yeah he's great and then i like i mean you know uh, joel edgerton and and chris pratt like they give them they have to humanize these guys a little bit so they by casting them they do a pretty good job but then also chris pratt because uh as much of a like badass as he's playing still gets the biggest laugh maybe in the movie which is i remember what you say uh I won't give it away, but it's uh, on the way to the raid. He's listening to headphones, and someone asks him what he's listening to. Oh, th- yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but then also a little thing. Okay, and this is what reminded me of Passion of the Christ. 
um, the Roman soldier in Passion of the Christ who gets his ear cut off and then Jesus puts the ear back on. Mm-hmm. And then the action moves on and then the Roman soldier just stays there dazed like, hey, how'd that happen? That uh-huh. seems strange. And it just lingers, the camera lingers on it just long enough. It's like, oh, that's nice. The soldier that actually gets Bin Laden, there is, right. a, there is a moment. Now, he, he eventually actually says what he's thinking. But there is a moment where there's all this action happening and he just walks out of the room uh-huh. because he has come to terms with the weight of what he has just, what he yeah. has just done. Like, there is no, like, there, there's no version of that with uh, uh, Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. or anything like that. This is, this is the guy we've been after for 10 years. And I got him, and it's and it's not a glee. It's just holy shit. It's me that did it. Did you, like, by the way, read that? Um, was it Esquire or Vanity Fair who had an anonymous interview with that guy, the guy who shot Bin Laden? Oh, interesting. Like just last week, I think. No, I didn't see that. He tells a story. It's a very long helicopter ride, which the movie doesn't, uh, I think, um, spend time with. But they're they're on the helicopter for a long time. And you talk about they have sort of these built-in things that they're supposed to pee into, but he, like, didn't like using them, so he, like, peed into an empty water bottle mm-hmm. and then stuck it in one of the many pockets on his uh, thing. And he was like, and he was like, uh, he's like, yeah, then I forgot I, I had it. So basically, I had, a, I, I had a bottle of my own piss in my pocket when I shot Bin Laden in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So, so far, like, we've been rather uh, jovial uh, a little bit about this, but, like, you know, there are some things, when you talk about Zero Dark Thirty, there are a couple of things that are going to be brought up culturally. Um, one of them is just the general idea of revenge as opposed to justice. Yeah. Because there is a difference. Mm-hmm. I know that because of uh, the Batman movies. Um, and Munich. And Munich, right, yes. But mostly Batman. Um, I'm joking, of course. I know that there is a difference before Batman came along. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and just, and, and how much our main character is out for revenge. Is out for revenge... But even if she was out for justice, more than any, more than anything, there she seems to be out for personal definition, mm-hmm. not glory, not pride. Definition. Uh, there's a, a really nice scene between her and James Gandolfini in which she uh, she states that this is the only thing she has been working on. Like, oh ever. right, yeah, and just and so it's like. I'm going to be doing a more than one lesson episode uh, about Zero Dark Thirty in a few weeks, and the companion film is going to be Sean Penn's The Pledge. Oh, cool. Um, and just this idea of like someone just throwing themselves into this so much that they start to disappear. And so if I don't, have, if, if I don't get this, then who am I? Nobody. So I need to do this. And then, of course, there's a, just a wonderful scene, beautifully written there at the end, where, uh, excuse me, where after she, after it all happens... And she realizes, oh, nope, this, right. this thing that I, it's, this has not provided me my, my identity. And so, um, so that's, so just this idea of like petty personal issues, that's not that petty. It's a, it's a big deal, but like personal issues and revenge can, and vengeance can be part of that coming into this thing. And I remember several people, including you, like when bin Laden was killed, like you, you were like, why, uh, maybe this shouldn't have happened. You know, like, of course, if somebody, oh, right, right. if somebody, does happen to die uh in a in a raid or something like that like if they went in to capture him and then he wind it you know and then he was killed during that that's one thing but they clearly went in with the purpose it was an assassination basically yeah. and so like 
you know, like grappling with the morals of that, especially yeah. when we see from her point of view. But then also there's the, the torture aspect. I do not think the film comes out in favor of torture. I think, and I, the scene where the guy's being put into the box and he's saying Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's like that, the fact that they included that detail, the idea that somebody will say anything in order to keep from being tortured. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that speaks volumes about right. the film's attitude towards the subject, right? Yeah. So, all right. Sorry, we can move on. It's yeah. it's a wonderful film. I'm sorry, uh, and it, it brings up a lot of interesting uh, ideas and, and issues. Yeah, I, I agree. I wish we could spend 15 minutes on every movie, but we uh, should pick up the pace a little bit. And this this will go a little more quickly here because you haven't seen this film. My number nine film of the year, and um, perhaps the highest ranking comedy in my list depending on how you feel about other films is uh casa de mi padre uh starring will ferrell gal garcia bernal and diego luna um man i did not know you liked it this much yeah i didn't see it so i you know it's i mean talk about having a blast but it's also you know i think i'll address the criticism against it which almost every almost every negative review has the same thing which is like this is a there is this is a one joke premise um but again for those who don't know because that's what i say all the time uh casa de mi padre is i guess i haven't seen any of these like uh mexican like telenovelas or or um this type of uh soap opera type movies or, or tv shows but i guess it's supposed to be based on that but it's also a western very much it has a lot of the um uh um trappings of a western it mm-hmm. takes place on a on a ranch and and that sort of thing um and people say that it's just basically like a sketch like a parody of these that's drawn out somehow to like 85 minutes however long the movie is um and i think what they're missing they they're calling it one one note in a bad way, whereas actually it is one note in the sense that it is for as fucking gonzo as it is and all the different places that it goes. Because I can imagine, it's a soap opera, um, it's um, uh, a western, it's also a musical, it's um, also uh, really violent, um, and it's also uh, really unabashedly taking on some serious social issues. Um, and the fact that it fits all that in to one tone that maintains co- cohesion, mm-hmm. coherency, is the definition of making a good film. That it feels like the same. It feels like the film is whole. Like there's nothing that I would add to or take away from Casa de mi Padre. Uh, it was one of the most fun movies that I watched this year. It's. Um, it is on Netflix. Watch Instant. That's how I saw it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is incredibly funny. And also, I'll get to the thing I said. Uh, there's a scene. After the, the story is Will Ferrell um, is the son of a rancher who lives on the ranch, and he has a brother played by Diego Luna, who is who is away. And Diego Luna is he's at the beginning he's the prodigal son. He comes back to the ranch, and the father who loves Diego Luna and does not like his son Will Ferrell mm-hmm. um, is happy he's back. He wants to uh, you know wants him to take over the ranch, but it turns out what Diego, Diego Luna has been doing while he's away is becoming a major drug. Uh, trafficker Mm -hmm. and he's moved back to this area that he was from where a different drug trafficker played by gail garcia bernal has already set up territory so it becomes about a a war amongst drug traffickers in mexico so um 
I guess you could say it might be um, callous to make a comedy about drug wars in Mexico when that is uh, such a, uh, a incredibly deadly and serious thing that's going on right now. Yeah. I think it's the exact time to make this kind of movie because it's not just a comedy. It talks about it and it also talks about uh, obviously Will Ferrell is an American um, and um, there also are a couple of American characters in the movie one played by Nick Offerman uh, who's a, uh, a DEA agent. Nice. Um, um, who uh, the, the the funny joke to him about me is that he speaks fluent Spanish. Like Nick Offerman's character knows every has entire conversations in Spanish, but does not make even the slightest attempt attempt to do to get the accent right. <laughs> He's like <laughs> clearly talking like like an American reading phonetically. Yeah, but like has is fluent in Spanish. That's uh, that's very funny to me. That's <laughs> um, and I bet he sells that well. Yeah. Um, so uh will ferrell being an american going down and making this movie that's uh about mexico mexico and about mexican forms of art uh is sort of um part of the conversation about america's relationship to mexico which is in the one hand on the one hand uh we are hypocritically dependent on them or at least our our drug economy is which is uh, a big part of american economy it makes a lot of americans a lot of money mm-hmm. uh the 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 drug thing um and so we feed in many ways off of mexico obviously and in other ways other than drugs we have factories down there we vacation down there we feed off of mexico but then we also shun them and 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 uh uh i mean you could however you feel about immigration laws aside even even beyond that uh, you know they are uh, Mexican Americans are often second class citizens. Um, they they work the quote unquote jobs we don't want to work, which is always a condescending thing to me. Um, and we don't help them out. Our government doesn't help them out in ways that maybe it it could. And so there's a scene after Diego Luna has come back where he and Will Ferrell go out to the bar together, and they in a very funny raucous scene talk about everything that I just talked about. Hmm. Uh, but it also it, it never stops being a comedy. Will, in in this scene, Will Ferrell, speaking Spanish, refers to Americans as a bunch of shit eating crazy monster babies. Uh, so that's the kind of movie that I'm talking about. Uh, it's it's very uh, strange. It also it, uh, it's very funny, and also like I said, it gets crazy bloody at the end. Mm-hmm. There's a shootout that is like just Scarface level, like insane squibs going off everywhere, like lots of blood, uh, which is something I didn't see coming. Hmm. What is your number nine movie of the year? Uh, I think this is where we're gonna have some uh, some overlap. Okay. Uh, Michael Haneke's Amour is yeah, number nine. That'll come up later. All right. So my number eight will come up later on your list. It is what? Okay. So let's see. Ten, ten, nine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So okay, next yeah. up is number eight for you. Uh, my number eight is Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. We'll, we'll talk, talk about, about that, that later. later. Your number eight? Silver Linings Playbook. Oh, I haven't seen it. Okay. Um, I don't know if you would like it. Okay. I think, I think you would. Okay. Uh, there are plenty of people that don't like it. There are people that think it is very overrated. In many ways, you could watch it and say, it's just, it, it's like Juno. It's like uh, Little, Miss, Little Sunshine. Miss Sunshine. You could watch it and think that. However, David O. Russell is a better director than those guys. Don't get me wrong, I like Jason Reitman. But David O. Russell, like, he's, he's kind of going back to, like, 
flirting the flirting with disaster thing uh-huh. where he manages to blend comedy and drama pretty well pretty flawlessly um get some really great performances and that's the thing a lot of people have a problem with like it's like ah mental illness is not you know it's not taken care of that easily just because the plot it's like well the character also it's it's made clear that he is also growing as a person taking his meds and mm-hmm. like doing something productive with his, with his life it's not just an overnight thing it's not mm-hmm. like you know it's not like Raymond and in, in Rain Man just suddenly starts talking and willingly gives a hug or something like <laughs> right. that. It's not as dramatic <laughs> as that, um, and it's and it's part of a genuine character arc. And so, um, but there are moments of extreme awkwardness, uh, wonderful performances by uh, everyone involved, and it's just it's just a very smart film. But the thing that got me—that's the thing. The, again, this is a list of favorites. And so I think there are probably some flaws with Silver Linings Playbook. Um, I'm not sure if I would say it's one of the ten best movies of all uh, of, of of the year. Um, but it's but one of your ten favorite. It's one of my ten favorite because there's a part I won't say what it is, but there's a part where, and I talked about this on the uh, on the Goebel show. The uh, there's a part where our our main characters they achieve something that to everybody and it, they achieve it publicly. And to everybody else in the room, it looks like failure. But to this, to our mm-hmm. heroes, uh, they never intended to achieve what these people thought was right. success. They merely wanted to get this thing. And I they like do. That. And so, and it's fascinating. And it's actually played for laughs, but it's also very poignant at the same time that, like, this thing happens and everyone else in the room is like, oh. And then our heroes just, yeah. Like they're just so, and it's they just explode with with excitement and it just and it got me like thinking about my own choices in life that just like yeah like my goals are not the same mm-hmm. and this could probably be said of almost anybody by the way like my goals are not the same as what everybody else's are or what people say my goals should be mm-hmm. and yet i keep and, and like i've achieved some of my goals Probably not as many as I would have liked, but whatever. Like, I've achieved some of my goals, but because they don't fit in with what everyone else says my goals should be, that, like, I, I discount it. It's like, no, I should be freaking celebrating what I've, been, what I've done. Mm-hmm. And so it's stuff like that, just, like, these little, these little, like, emotional truths that just come out in the midst of comedy, you know, uh, that, uh, that just, it's, it's so poignant, and it's just a, it's just a really... I found it to be an incredibly engaging film. And there are plenty of people that don't like it. Jen did not like it. Oh. Um, and, uh, and I understand why people don't like it. But, uh, but man, it really got me. And I, I really loved it. All right. Um, my number seven also could be considered the highest ranking comedy on the list, um, depending on whether or not you consider it a comedy. Um, I wouldn't blame you for considering it a comedy because it is called The Comedy, um, directed by Rick Alverson, I think is his name. Um, uh, this was... Uh, I-, I laughed a lot at this movie. I also left the theater feeling really bummed out because uh, it's... Uh, so, I, I, the, again, I'll start by addressing, I don't know, but criticisms, but the general read of the film, which is that it's about... Um, a certain strain of New York City, Brooklyn, uh, really Brooklyn hipsterdom, white hipsterdom, mm-hmm. um, where uh, Tim Heidecker essentially uh, plays this 
uh, aging. I mean, he's not old, old, but he's 35. He's getting uh, to be too old to be a young, like, uh, hipster, I guess, yeah. anymore. Um, Don't remind me, Dave. My birthday's a- <laughs> coming up. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, what will you do when you're not a hipster anymore, Tyler? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, who's also, he's also incredibly, uh, comes from a lot of money. He's like a, a trust fund kid. Um, and it certainly is about that and that sort of, um, that sort of strain of what is considered cool in like, uh, I guess modern, uh, counter or subcultures, uh, you know, the, um, not, not in, not engaging in anything earnestly being ironic, making fun of everything all the time, mm-hmm. um, and not ever being a real person, uh, and that is taken that not ever being a real person is taking to such an extreme in the comedy that it is both very funny that he is always putting on no matter who he's talking to no matter whom he's talking to or what he's talking about he is always putting on something some sort of persona hmm. and it's again leads to a lot of uh comedy very uncomfortable comedy there's one part when he's home visiting the the mansion where he he grew up where he's pretending that he's looking out on the yard as though it's a plantation and he's a slave owner in the <laughs> uh, in the 1800s south he's putting on a southern accent and he's saying horror horrifically racist things huh um you mean to and- say that tim heidecker <laughs> yes was responsible for some uncomfortable comedy yeah <laughs> yes huh. uh he, yeah it's a bit of a stretch for him um but he's great um also of of Tim and Eric, Eric Wareheim uh, uh, plays a, a role as as one of um, Tim uh, Swanson is Tim Heidecker's character's name. One of Swanson's friends. Also, um, uh, Greg Turkington, um, whom you might know as Neil Hamburger. Oh, got it. All uh, right, I knew I knew, knew the name from somewhere. Yeah, um, uh, he he's in there. Um, anyway, uh, so it is all those things. It also. For movie geeks, I thought of it as that Tim Heidecker is essentially playing every character Bill Murray played in the 1980s, like the cool, sarcastic guy. He's always got a joke. He's mm-hmm. he's even no matter what's going on, something serious like ghosts invading, or in the comedy something serious like his father dying. Mm-hmm. He's still got a quip about it yeah uh and in those bill murray movies that's cool bill murray's the cool guy uh in real life that is a very very sad man yeah. <laughs> uh who, who is always doing that and that's uh, uh the comedy really really affected me it's it's uh beautiful to look at um the music they use is um um william basinski's uh, the disintegration loops which is something that i had heard of before this movie but had never actually heard and it's very strange and beautiful and eerie music that mm-hmm. is that is used uh it was uh it was it was gorgeous but um also uh a real bummer hmm. and i'm glad i saw it in a press screening of one i was the only person who showed up to the press screening fascinating uh it was very odd um, but I'm kind of glad because I think I would have felt it gets to like, it gets so uncomfortable with like the racist humor I was yeah. talking about. And there's a part where, um, did you laugh out loud at the racist? Yeah. Humor? It's really okay. funny. And yeah. that's what I would have been self-conscious. There's a part where Tim and his, or, or Swanson and his two friends get into the back of a cab and are just like 
awful to this cab driver. Like they're rich, they're all rich people. Yeah. And just being awful to this cab driver. And it's hilarious, but also like sickening. Yeah. And it, I would have been, I would have been a little self-conscious maybe watching it with other people. Hmm. All right. What is your number seven? My number seven is uh, Andrew Dominic's Killing Them Softly. Oh, I didn't see this one. Yeah. I'll just uh, take a nap. Yeah, just just check out. It's It should be fine. Um, yeah, the uh, I sort of wanted to bring it up last week with Ian. Because um, we were talking about how movies uh, have started to take on the feel of comic books. Killing Them Softly, yes, it is based on a... Uh, on a uh, book called uh, Kogan's Trade, I believe. Hmm. Um, so it is based on something, admittedly. But uh, the 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 type of story that it is, and then the just the general visuals, the type of characters that are involved, and the j- the visuals of it, it feels like it was adapted from a graphic novel, hmm. like just a one-off history of violence type of thing. Um, it it has that feeling, like it's it's heightened yet realistic um the dialogue is is stylized yet in some ways very mundane um and the performances are are great all around brad pitt does good work it's not really about him he's more sort of our end point he's sort of the observer uh of these other characters uh i've i've talked about james gandolfini i'm going to talk about him again in a couple weeks um uh Richard Jenkins is delightful in it. He plays yet another uh like kind of a corporate weasel type, um kind of a sad sack. Uh but he happened he basically is the lawyer for like a, the mob. Uh but the way in which he talks about it is uh it's like he's running he's working for any other corporation. Like they make their decisions and he has to implement it and it's just their decisions aren't based on anything particularly logical, but he still has to make it work and all that. And so it's it's very interesting. Uh, Scoot McNary, who uh, was notable in Argo, I think he's great in Argo. Although, yeah, and he's great in this. He is, yeah, like he's. I know it sounds silly. Like I was going to say, like he's going places. Well, he's at those places. Now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, but I think he could be like a like a really a really big star. He has a very he has the kind of look to him where. And he's at the right age. He could veer off into character actor territory, which is where he is now. Or he could just as easily become like a leading actor. Is America ready for a leading actor named Scoot? Oh, I think so. Okay. No question about it. You know, um, a good percentage of them were ready for a president named Mitt. So we all, you know, we all have a... a, But so... um, But so, like, it's... Now, there's a lot... To it, there's a lot of like because it also sort of explores uh, the economy right now, um, although it takes place a few years ago. But just how things have become very dog eat dog. This idea of like just being so beaten down by having to work, not sure if you're going to be able to keep your job, being scared, and just just fighting for every cent you can get. Um, like that's all there, and it does take place during the uh, the election um, of two thousand eight, and so you see it on in the background. Like it, characters will be talking, and the radios going, and you hear like speeches and political commentary and stuff. Um, and so, of course, it's it's this very dark and gritty and deeply cynical story, 
and of course behind it and of course all all of this is happening during the soaring hope and change rhetoric of the 2008 uh senator obama and um and i don't mean to say that it it craps on him but it's more just like it does have a just a general cynical view of of optimism and just like (laughs) yeah you can say whatever you want we know how the world works not merely how america works but how people work all right you can talk like it doesn't matter it like you could be president of a capitalist country and and talk about like we're really going to do something or you could be part of a socialist country it's like we're all going to be in this together it's like in the end we're all just we're all just scrape scraping by getting anything we can and you just see the characters just beaten down by that fact and so it takes a certain degree of glee in its cynicism uh and uh and it's not perfect there are people that hate the movie um because some of the dialogue is really on the nose and uh but man, I just really responded to it. Um, it's not often that I really just love movies that, uh, like I, I, I tend, I, I tend to gravitate towards things that are slightly more optimistic these days. I still do love, you know, the classic noir and stuff like that. But, uh, but there are a couple movies on my top 10 list that talk about human nature uh-huh. and it is not a pretty thing. <laughs> and so, uh, if you haven't seen killing them softly, I mean, it came and went at the theaters. It was a pretty much a bomb. Um, but man, it's, it's beautiful, wonderful performances. I, I think everyone should see it. I think you would enjoy it. I'm not okay. sure. All right. Um, my number six. Okay. You, you were just mentioning Argo. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the other sort of themes that will come up, uh, in, as we go along in my list that I saw developing in 2012 was um, movies that are about storytelling and the power of storytelling mm-hmm. in, in, in a way, um, which Argo, which I don't think made either of our lists, so we're not going to be talking about Argo, right. right? But Argo, when it's at its best, is about that, uh, you know, about how um, basically all these people got saved because of the power of uh, a story. By which I, we mean, of course, they became Christians. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's just how good that that script was. <laughs> um, and then I also mentioned, obviously, Casa de Mi Padre is a, a a parody of a couple of different types of movies. The comedy, there's a way to read it that it's about movies. So my number six is a movie that's about all movies in a way, and that's uh, Holy Motors. Oh yes, okay. Um, I mean, basically, there's the. I mean the the main guy. I'm drawing a blank on his name all of a sudden. Uh, Dennis uh, Levant. Yeah, uh, although it's probably Denis. Oh yeah, probably Denis Levant. Um, Sorry, it's spelled like Dennis Leary, so I just assume right. it's Dennis. <laughs> um, he plays he plays a character throughout the movie. Yeah, but then he also plays like eleven other characters. He plays that character playing like eleven other characters. I think it is or something. And each one of those is kind of a different subgenre of movie. You've got like. Yeah. Uh, you got crime story, love story, science fiction, horror, uh, horror, animated kind uh, of. Yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, you've got a musical, which is my favorite part of the movie. I like musicals, and I, and I love Kylie Minogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the part with Kylie Minogue is my favorite part of the movie, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it is by its very nature, it is episodic, so you can sort of pick the ones you like and the ones you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and uh, I, I thought it was. Ooh, Again, it came up with Amy a couple weeks ago that it is Im- imperfect, but it's so yeah. astounding an accomplishment yeah. that uh, it has to make my list. Um, I 
uh, you know, didn't. Even when I did, even when there were parts I wasn't loving, I didn't want it to end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I kept wanting to see what the next thing was going to be. Um, and it's so hard to even, it's very difficult to talk about this movie, yeah. especially if we're trying to keep it under 10 minutes. Um, but I think it keeps coming back to, I guess, Denis Levant, um, who his the 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 movie success I think is uh, it hinges on his ability or his his success at um, maintaining a perf- a, a, a reson- recognizable character throughout while he's playing all these other roles. Yes, um, and I, I think as daring as director Leo Scarax, I don't know how you say that yeah. either. Um, how, uh, as accomplished as he is, um, the movie works for before anything else. It works because of Denis Levant, yeah. uh, uh, and I think that's um, that's. Something I guess I uh, the, the the benefit. Uh, I keep saying like responding to criticism, running other things. The benefit of us doing these episodes so late. Uh, later than everyone else has done their top 10 is both that it gives us time to catch up on some stuff and also be- that we can uh, I think try to say things other than what's been said and so I, I don't think enough of the attention at least that I've listened to or read about Holy Motors has been on that performance uh, it's, it's well, been I mean, it, one, I mean he has like when the in the fall when like the critics awards were coming out like he was winning best actor right and left um, but it almost seemed Maybe I'm reading too much into this. It almost seemed like it's like, wow, that's really good. Let's give that to him. Now we don't have to think about it, right? <laughs> um, but there, there are other things going on, yeah. um, of course. Uh, I think because I think it's a movie about movies uh, um, uh, in in a lot of ways. Because um, there are, um, you know, nods to the artifice of it all. Um, and, and like I talked about the different genres, but it's also about, I think, one of the things that resonated with me about it is the idea that as you go on through this guy's day, and it takes place over one day where he switch, he's playing all these different roles. And, and at, at the beginning, the thought is that it's some sort of like one man improv everywhere where he's just like showing up places and characters and in costumes. Yeah. And as it goes on, you start to realize that more and more people that he's interacting with are doing the same thing they're they probably they have their own limos maybe yeah. you know full of costumes and and uh and um they're playing characters too and it starts to get to a point where you, you don't know this but you start to like wonder is every person in the movie who's not driving a limo yeah play acting uh and then by the end is is the person you start to wonder if the person driving the limo is play acting yeah oh, those limos might be able to drive themselves for all i know um and and so uh, it, that, it started to resonate with me this idea that sort of like what we were talking about with Hannah Karenina the idea that even when you're being yourself you're playing a role mm-hmm. and um, you know there is uh, there is a scene there was a visual gag about uh, um, people uh, advertising their websites uh, in the movie and, you yeah. know the one you didn't think it was very funny I thought it was I thought it was fine yeah it, I chuckled um, but the idea that in uh a social networking world increasingly we are 
more overtly always playing characters. Yeah. And we're not and always, always playing the same character. And always trying to sell ourselves in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, but also not always playing the same character. You know, you have... I, uh, You know, I've done... I, it happened subconsciously, but I have me, me. I have podcast me. I have Twitter me. I have Instagram me. They're all, like... I'm thinking of different... I'm thinking of different people, different audiences, I guess, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppress my Irish accent for the <laughs> right, show. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm still not used to that. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, all, all of uh, all of these things have happened subconsciously, and it's not like it's a wildly different the way it is in the movie where I'm putting on right. an entirely different persona, but I do, I, I do, you know, uh, make... I, I do adjust myself based on where I am. And I think everyone does that, but it's become more clear with social networking. But also just... Uh, but, but I don't want to sound like I'm saying it's something that is only happening with social networking. I think it's something that's always happened. When something... Uh, I don't know if you... we are. I already mentioned The Beach earlier, mm-hmm. um, which is a movie that I like. The book, I think, is more um, uh, overt about this idea that someone who has ingested enough popular culture to um basically the idea is if you've seen so much popular culture um if you're in a situation where an angry screaming asian man has a revolver with one bullet in it and plays russian roulette with you that actually happens as terrified as you are Mm -hmm. you're gonna think of the deer hunter yeah like no matter and 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 the the movie, the book the beach uh, talks more about that that the movie he certainly delves into it with deer hunter type stuff and the video game type stuff yeah um and so um there are scenes that this guy has to play you know like the reuniting of lovers or uh you know a dying man's last words to his daughter or whoever yeah um where it's such a dramatic thing that actually happens in real people's lives but that if it happened to us we would probably be maybe even not at the top of our brains subconsciously thinking about the movies we'd seen that tackled this thing oh yeah and our behavior might be informed by the way that certain actors have portrayed this and well, i think that, that and that's beca- what resonated with me as a film watcher and it becomes circular because you know you see these movies that portray some experiences that you've not had and then you have the experience and you're like oh this is like that movie but then you see a movie afterwards having had the experience that you've had and then you're like this movie's exactly right because i right. know what that's like but then of course the experience you had was probably shaped by the movie you saw before yeah like and it just everything feeds into itself and yeah it's uh it's a movie that um i don't i don't think is perfect but of course any movie that shoots for anything that shoots for the moon uh like it, it might fall short a little bit, but that yeah. that certainly doesn't mean it's not great. And, yeah, I'm going to um, pause right there to talk about another. Uh, I occasionally bring up these sort of trends that I discovered in mm-hmm. 22 or that I saw in movies. And daring, shooting from the moon, audacity yeah. is something that is in most of the remaining films on my list, uh, as well as this one, and one that just missed the honorable mention cut, uh, which was Les Miserables, which I liked a lot mm-hmm. more than the new. Yeah. Um, that uh, and part of the reason I liked it so much was its audacity, uh, and so anyway, back to Holy Motors. Yeah, and so um, and and it's one of those that like as I mentioned with with Amy, like when I finally saw it, I brought so much to the film that had nothing to do with the film. Right. Um, 
And so now that I've seen it, and it is a part of me, I know that's a really pretentious thing to say, but like, that is true. And as time has gone on, and like, it's like, well, now I just, now when people mention Holy Motors, I know what they're talking about. It's not just this amorphous thing in my mind. So now, now I, I'm free to think about the movie and, and feel the movie. Um, and uh, by the way, I remember when you and I were talking about it, shortly after I saw it, you asked like what my favorite part was, which is not a, you know, not a question that I usually answer on a regular basis, but because of the nature of the film, it's, <laughs> it's easy to do so. Uh, I said the anima- the uh, motion capture sequence. Uh, I was incorrect. The intermission. Oh, yeah. That thing... Yeah. Good lord! I mean, there are there are entire sequences that are just like they're just magical, but in a way that seems so entirely practical. Yeah, and and it's also for a while I viewed this as a flaw, and it might still be one. I'm not sure, but like you know, when you know that this guy is playing a part, then when he and then he goes into a scene that's very dramatic, and they really go into that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, not unlike what I was talking about with Anna Karenina, actually. You know, it's like, it's hard to let yourself get into the scene knowing full well, like, well, uh, he's not actually dying. He's going to be okay and right. everything's fine. But then that scene is over and then he he gets up and he, like, talks very brief- briefly to the to the woman who's father uh, you know who's playing the part of the grieving daughter Mm -hmm. and and they experience a connection yeah maybe they experience a connection because of the scene they just did maybe if they were doing a different kind of scene they wouldn't experience the connection like they seem to have a respect for each other as actors and how committed they were to this but also the very nature of the thing they were doing might have been the thing to bring them closer and so again it's that layer it's like you never it's like chicken and egg chicken and the egg like you never really know which one informs the other and then you realize it's just this constant cycle and uh and that's and that's where you get to the 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 idea of there's the character underneath the guy underneath all the characters and so it's just it's a some people may love it some people may hate it everyone should see it yeah would you say that's a fair assessment yes yes and i will say one more thing the things i didn't like about it the most which i also said when we talked about it with amy a couple weeks ago uh a lot of the comedy didn't work but I will say, and I can't remember if I said this when we talked about it, the one moment that absolutely depends on a joke working, because it is preceded by them, by him and the driver saying, we need to have a laugh, mm-hmm. uh, and then something happens and they do laugh, it's hilarious. Yeah. And I really did laugh. Yeah. Um, so that that worked when it, even that, it really worked when it needed to. Yeah. All right, what is your number six? My number six is The Cabin in the Woods. Oh, brother. A movie that you hate I don't and hate, hate me as a result. Here's the thing. I mostly enjoyed myself watching it, mm-hmm. but the more I... Th- and I but, but I knew... I was sort of like in two planes because I was like enjoying the comedy of it and some of the fun of it, but also the intellectual part of me was like feeling really let down by it because mm-hmm. I wanted it to be uh, smarter than I thought that it was. And then the more I've thought about the movie... Since I've seen it, the more the intellectual part has won over, and I, I, I have harsher feelings toward the movie even than I did when I first saw it. I still enjoy it, and the intellect and the intellectual part has gotten bigger. Um, like it's, 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 and it, I think I've said this on the show before. I think we said it in our in our Halloween episode um, that 
yes, it is a deconstruction of the horror genre, and it doesn't necessarily bring anything new to it. But I actually think it's... And so if you want to look at it purely as that, it's nothing Scream ha- didn't do or Behind the Mask or whatever. So um, it may do it in kind of a neat and creative way, but as far as that aspect of it, nothing that new. What I like about it is I think it goes beyond horror. I think it goes beyond film. I think it goes to art in general. And it takes it takes the audience to task. No, it doesn't take them to task. It just challenges them. And it ta- and and just the general system that says this is the way it's always been and this is the way we got to do it. Um, and so, like, the idea of, like, just f- art, uh, art in general just the the temptation to just give the audience what they think they want and by the way like you know it's easy for us to say like ah oh, the audience thinks they want this but once they're provided with an alternative they'll say, they might not mm-hmm. they might be furious at the thing that you've given them as for example the person sitting behind me at cabin in the woods was yeah that's what i think that i'm astounded by uh, again, it's being in that echo chamber. Like the very thing that people like us love about Cabin in the Woods, the way that it becomes something so unlike yeah. what we thought it was. Uh, most people hate that, and to, it, that fascinates me. And so, like, and it's one of those things. It was it was a delightful, self fulfilling prophecy because the last shot of the film. I won't go into a lot of detail about it. I'm, uh-huh. I'm sure people have seen it, but either way, um, is what I consider to be the audience surrogate of the film uh-huh. literally smacks down this bullshit, <laughs> this original bullshit. Right. And smash cut to black. Yeah, I like that. Immediately. Uh, probably 18-year-olds behind me. The, one guy's like, he goes, something like, like, what the fuck was that? Or like, that was bull. I think he says that was bullshit. I think uh-huh. that's why I said it. And so like, in me, it's like, oh, oh, you don't know this, but the movie just said you were going to say that. Um, and it's it's just one of those things. And just like, and I don't know. And it, and it just caused me to like, it caused me to think about the things that I require, like formulas I require. It's just not, no, you need to fill into, because it can fit into any number of things. It could be like, okay, there's a formula to horror. And if you don't hit it, I don't, I'm not happy. Like that's, that's one. Or it could be, quite frankly, like, there are certain things that critics in general say, like, this is what makes for a good movie. And often, I think we can sometimes... One of the reasons that I'm happy to have this show is that I think, hopefully, you and I challenge each other to not get too into our personal artistic ruts, our analytical ruts, so that we can think outside of that a little bit. And so, what it's basically saying is, the thing that you want the most, the thing that, like, you might want it precisely because it is the most comfortable again Mm -hmm. such as human nature but like and that is precisely when you should be at your most vigilant and say i'm very comfortable you know what And, and this thing is very strange it's making me uncomfortable all the more reason why it might not it still might not be good but all the more reason why i should give it a second a third a fourth look and just be as open to it as possible and that's what I got out of Cabin in the Woods. And by the way, it's also I, incredibly funny. Yeah, it is. I, I like I like that interpretation. And yeah, it is very funny. Yeah. Uh, Richard Jenkins, Bradley Woodford, Amy Acker, and um, the guy from Men of a Certain Age. Uh, I can't remember. Um, 
the black guy, you know? Uh, they're, they're all very funny. They're the best part of the movie. But you're not listening to me. You're on. You're looking at your list. Yes, I'm sorry. I wanted to... Because that's the thing. Every year this happens, where there is overlap... Uh-huh. I was listening, but like every year there is overlap. And so I'm like, okay, I don't totally remember what we've talked about now. And I want to make sure <laughs> it's just like that we don't pass over something twice because we think we talked about right. it already. Well, um, we haven't talked about it more. Okay. And that is my number five. All right. Um, like, uh, like, like someone in love, um, Amour is a film that aesthetically has a very, um, placid camera, very, very considered compositions. And the camera just generally sticks with them. Um, and, and, uh, that's, I think pretty standard for Michael, uh, Mikhail Hanukkah, or however you say his name. Yeah. Um, and yet he, he used it. It's sort of, I remember, um, somewhat recently, uh, Adam Kempinar on uh, Film Spotting, mm-hmm. when they were talking about the films of, of Mike Lee, talking about how all the ways that Topsy Turvy is not um, a standard Mike Lee film, but all the ways that it actually really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of how I felt about Amour, because again, a lot of the talk has been about he's made this uh, much more humanistic film than he's ever, much more sympathetic film yeah. than he's ever uh, made before. Um, and that's that's true. Uh, it, it, the film isn't. I would not say Amor is sadistic the way that he no. can certainly be sadistic, uh, but it is also not soft. It is in any unblinking way. and yeah. and relentless. Yeah, and that is in that way. It's just like it's just as much as Funny Games. You know, it's, yeah. it's just as much a work of its director as Funny Games. And it is no more willing to let people off the hook for being people. Yeah, because. Um, uh, the it's about an elderly couple one the woman is dying um she's had a couple of strokes and is uh you know eventually bedridden and and uh can't really talk uh, it's very brutal um and then her husband who is also in his mid 80s yeah. is taking care of her devoting all his energy to her mm-hmm. so you know she is sympathetic he is saintly but they both act in ways that are uh occasionally selfish or childish yeah um they they can be mildly cruel to one another uh and the fact that hanukkah doesn't uh doesn't pull away from that is what makes it yes humanistic but not sappy yeah it's i I, that was my when i I saw it only a couple days ago because i really wanted to see it in, in anticipation of this um the uh I said it's beautiful and yet I'd say totally unsentimental. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just, and it's one of those where, yeah, it's, there's a, there's a constant back and forth where like sometimes the characters can be very selfish. Sometimes they can be very selfless, Uh you know, Um, like she doesn't want to stick around, but she recognizes that he kind of needs her to for at least, at least a while. Mm Mm-hmm. And so she'll she'll put in the effort. He doesn't want her to go, but right. recognizes it, after a certain point, come on, yeah. like, I need to have mercy on her. And so, you know, right, right, blah, right. blah, blah, um, blah. And so and, and in so in that sense, 
I know this is a really lofty thing, what I'm going to say. And by the way, much... What I'm about to say is much more sentimental than the movie ever is. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, the movie's called Amour. Yeah. It's a, it's love. I've been married for a while now. Uh, that's how it is. Sometimes yeah. you're selfish. Sometimes you need to be selfish. Sometimes you probably don't and are. Uh, sometimes you are selfless. Uh, you know, if you get a day, if you, you know... Sometimes you'll get days when you are both being selfish. Sometimes you'll get days when you're both being selfless, and those are those are great days. Um, and uh, and that's and that's what it is. But and and Haneke, uh is the uh, director I was talking about who just oh, right, has yeah. such a measured tone and just oh, so lingers. it made sense that I also brought up like yeah. someone in love again. Oh yeah. Um, he also so speaking of selfishness. The one thing that I focused on in my review is this idea that, because I hadn't really thought about it before. But the very act of like grieving, or you know, if uh, not that they're you know the woman is dying, she's not dead, but yeah. still, there it's is. A, yeah, it's grieving the life that you no longer have. Yeah, um, the very act of grieving, it's not for them. You're like it right. is almost selfish to like they're the ones who are dying, like, and you're putting so much pain onto yourself. Um, th- that the very act of grieving is kind of a selfish act, or or at least that's um, something that that um michael hanagi uh explores here because mm-hmm. uh george the 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 husband yeah. is grieving in this way i'm talking about but he's also doing something mm-hmm. whereas you get their daughter isabel Huppert, um who's an awesome actress so i always liked her mm-hmm. um she just wants to like grieve and she wants to do it a sort of on her schedule she's a very busy yeah. woman she wants to be able to see her mother when she wants to and it's there's little that she actually wants to do. She yeah. just like feels, I guess, to for her own pride that she needs to show up and be there and hold her hand and do whatever, whatever happens in movies like in Holy Motors. But at the same time, like, but I, you know, I, uh, Haneke is not uh, opposed to judging his characters, as we know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I got no judgment even for the daughter. Like it's. No, no, I didn't think he was he, judging. But, yeah. yeah. But, like, and that's the thing. Like, and she's great in the movie. Yeah, she, re- she really is. Yeah. And, and it would have been easy for that character to be really two-dimensional uh-huh. um, and generally unlikable. But, uh, you know, and that's... Okay, so I'll, I'll bring up some personal stuff with, uh, with both of us. Um, you know, so both of us uh, have experienced grief in our lives, and uh, both of us at some point had to be told while we were in that initial stage of, of grief that like, it's okay to be selfish right now. Like, mm-hmm. and I remember, uh, not at the literal funeral of my dad, but when my family was all in town and I remember my uncle, maybe one of the only profound things he's ever said, um, no offense to him, um, <laughs> is that, uh, he's always been very supportive of me. Why am I insulting him? But, uh, He's like, he's like, you know, you're really just going to have to let everyone do this in their own way, like experience this in their own way. And like, and so, uh, she, she does now admittedly, she's not necessarily letting her dad experience it in his own way, but at the same time, that does seem to be the director's approach to every character involved, uh, including her. And so, uh, it's, it's such a beautiful film and it is, and it is unrelenting, but that's what you want. Number five for you. Number five for me is Bernie. Oh, great! So, um, was that is that on your list at all? I think that is also. I had to check that might be might have been disqualified by my weird math. Ah, you son of a bitch. Okay, uh, but yeah, I love Bernie. Yeah, that's uh, Richard Linkletter. Um, 
one just a such an odd such an odd little film you know it's first and foremost a comedy easily yeah like in in spite of the fact that a murder takes place um and that there's and that somebody goes to jail for life and all that <laughs> like throughout it all surprisingly funny yeah and and i like uh i love dark comedy uh, and I like the kind of dark comedies that are overtly dark, mm-hmm. uh, but I like this one even more in that it's it doesn't have the tone you think of when you think of dark comedy. No, not at all. It seems very light. Yeah, but like even before sardonic. the murder happens, the the opening scene, which is one of the most amazing scenes of Richard Linklater's or Jack Black's career. Yeah, end uh, of the year in general. Yeah, um, which is um, uh, it's it's Jack Black teaching a class because he plays a. Um, what do you call it? Mortician? Mortician, I guess. He's, yeah. He does the um, uh, cosmetics, the makeup and, yeah. the, and, and, and the stuff. You know, uh, That's one of his jobs on, on dead bodies before before the funeral. So it's him with an actual like the de- dead body of an old man, and he's teaching a class of mortuary students or whatever, and it's uh, he's so... He's so loving, uh, you know, and respectful of what he's doing, but he's also aware of the fact that he is one of the people and he is around people who are around death all the time and it's not the the biggest deal in the world so he's he's being a little flip making jokes and just being very sort of very sweet and human while you know uh gluing together the lips of a dead person yeah it's, it's an amazing scene and and it really is i mean that is a film that just i mean it it stretches Jack Black in a way that I've I've never seen, and yet his le- his strange level of energy as a performer is exactly what the role needs. <laughs> yeah. No one would ever think to cast him in that role if you just see it on the page, but it's perfect. He makes that that role his own, and but it's also an interesting portrait of like a community, an interesting portrait of like not on. It's almost like Twelve Angry Men. Like when it comes to like justice you realize how much people personally bring to it. It's like justice is blind. No, it is not (laughs) like people bring a lot of personal preference into it. (laughs) And, uh, and it's just, and it's shot really well. And by which I mean, like it's just structured really well. And, uh, it's just such a, it's a fun experience that is also by the end of it, it makes you kind of uncomfortable because you're like, why am I not unlike, uh, arbitrage. Like you, you find yourself like on this guy's side in spite of the fact that he did this thing. Yeah. Now, maybe you can, you can certainly understand why he did this thing, but that doesn't excuse it because if it did, we'd all kill everyone. Right. You know, <laughs> I would have killed David eight times by now. Sure. Um, I've talked before about how I, I don't, I don't have the best, as much as I love movies, I don't always have the best memory for specifics. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've said we should do an episode about that. And I think we should, although I don't know quite, it's a little nebulous. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but it's been, it was May, uh, maybe even April when it came out here. Yeah. Um, so it's been the better part of a year. And I remember this movie so well. Like I, that song, Love Lifted Me, still pops into my head all the time. Oh, yeah. Things that the one, because oh, he has uh, interviews. six trombones, that, that smash uh, right? cut yeah. is like one of the more memorable. Um, but uh, Linklater includes interviews with actual town people. Um uh, who knew the real Bernie? Mm-hmm. Um, but then they also play themselves in the movie, so it's a little weird. But yeah. uh, some of the things they say, you know, obviously that that dog don't hunt. But the one, 
the things that really stick with me is the one old guy who because they moved the trial to another town mm-hmm. and there's one guy who seems to have just an endless amount of shitty things to, to say about people from that town <laughs> and they're all very creative yeah and mean and funny yeah. it's basically shelbyville uh, <laughs> yeah. from yeah. the simpsons yeah so all right um i'll move on to my number four um which is uh, you know what at the time i saw this only a few short months ago i would have thought it would be my number one um but i've seen a few movies in the months since then uh, it's at number four um it's cloud atlas okay. it's a very divisive movie i think uh, i you know said that it was one of the more underrated but it also also showing up on a lot of top 10 lists including from our astute writers yeah um, I had I had initially had it written down as my underrated, uh-huh. but I knew we were going to be talking about it in detail right. later. So, um, and uh, again, this uh, includes the thing I was talking about about movies about storytelling, um, because I mean I think one of the things that people object to, and I totally this is a movie that the people who hate cloud atlas i totally get it like i know exactly what you mean yeah uh but it worked for me and i think one of the things they object to is just how like fakey everything is you know even as as much money as was clearly spent on locations and sets and uh and visual effects and all these all these things it all it seems like i i imagine it's like i i i see that the the cast of this movie um, you know Tom Hanks, Holly Berry, Ben Whishaw. Um, I'm trying to think. Hugh Grant. Uh, who else is? I, I forget some of the Jim Sturgis. Um, I forget the name of the guy who plays um, Sixsmith, who's my favorite character in the movie. Oh um, hell! But he's fantastic. Is it James Darcy? It, I think it is actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and Hugo the, Weaving and Jim Broadbent. Hugo Weaving, uh, Duna Bay. Um, all these people. Uh, I think of them as a sort of troop of actors like the ones from season three of Deadwood, you know, (laughs) where there's like, (laughs) there's just a corniness to them and they, they, they travel around with a stagecoach full of trunks with, with wigs uh, and dresses and yeah. And, 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 uh, like face different makeups and stuff like that. And they put on this, this show. So there is, there's this very heightened theatricality Mm -hmm. to the whole thing. And I, I love that. And I understand why some people hate that part of it. Um, because it it doesn't necessarily uh, pour through the film fluidly. <laughs> the movie the movie definitely. Uh, I mean, it. My my. I saw it with my girlfriend. She didn't like it very much. One of her complaints is that it's uh, every moment of the movie is portrayed as if it's the climax of the movie. <laughs> like it's always. And that's what I tell, that's what I mean when I say it's heightened. Yeah. It's always playing at full volume. Um, on i'm not even sure if i i don't think i agree with that like i feel like it's structured so well that like i mean all, certainly all the climaxes kind of happen at the same time mm-hmm. um but it's uh i don't know i felt like there was a really great flow to it mm-hmm. uh, at all times like there are nice dips you know just a very very much an ebb and flow like and then it peaked when it should have yeah uh and well speaking of those having the same time because the book that it's written doesn't unf- that it's based on doesn't unfold like that. Yeah, that's what I heard. It doesn't all happen concurrently. Um, it has a very specific structure that I won't try to um, explain here, but people should watch it or should read it rather. Uh, but I give a lot of credit to 
the three directors, uh, Andy and Lana Wachowski and uh, Tom Tickver, uh, and the editor whose name I swear we did we've been going for so long I forgot. I like reminded myself <laughs> of his name before we started. Sorry, and I forgot his name. But they get, should get a lot of credit because you talk about the climaxes all happening at the same time, um, and it's not like that. But it also borrowing from one another uh, and, and playing together in a way that. The one one story will be climaxing where there's like it's like life and death. People will be being killed or there are explosions or something. Yeah. And then one climax is like a sort of uh, silly bar fight. Yeah. And um, is about an, just an old man trying to get out of a a nursing home, and it has kind of a comedy to it. And the fact that that they feel like the same weight is, yeah. a, I think, a, a real um, a real credit to to the film but it also uh, obviously has it is again another thing that uh people can rightly complain about is that you don't have to think too hard or at all to know what the movie's themes are because it keeps saying them to you the whole time yeah uh which is basically that uh every every per what every person is and does um is informed by what every other person has ever done and will inform what every other person ever does in some way it's all part of the same strain of humanity and we're all affecting it just by being alive uh and i and um and i do I find that really oh go ahead sorry uh, i just because of my own personal philosophy of life and even political beliefs i found that really resonant you know and that's the thing like yes the themes are very obvious uh, that doesn't bother me um, but it's it, some of the ways in which it, it puts those themes out there obviously yes of course uh, having actors play these parts throughout the ages and all that um, but also it's I mean yeah ha- having the makeup be uh, obviously they didn't make the, they didn't want the makeup to be bad but they did not want it to be absolutely perfect because yeah. if they if they were going to do that, then they could just cast different people. Yeah, like you need to you need to be able to recognize yeah. that that's Hugo Weaving and that's Hugh Grant. Yeah, and recognize because in doing so, you acknowledge maybe not consciously, but you acknowledge that like you know the differences between these between these people and these characters is really only skin deep. At their core, we're all kind of the same. Blah blah blah. Um, but uh, but one of the other things that I like, and this is something that I that I respond to because of you know just uh, maybe some of my philosophies but also some of my artistic philosophies just the idea that like that they are willing to have like Jim Broadbent or something you know everybody plays somebody in, in one of these stories mm-hmm. sometimes the character has no lines and yeah. is on screen for two minutes uh, for two, two seconds yeah okay but they still took the time to make that person up mm-hmm. and all that um and still showed them on screen. And oh, it, when we and were listening to the actors, we didn't mention Keith David. Keith, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, did we mention Susan Sarandon either? I don't think we. did. No, we didn't. Okay. Yeah, she's so great like, too. So the so the idea that like Jim Broadbent, who plays so imperative a role in this other story, can play so small a role, what it winds up doing is it equalizes the two of them. It it says mm-hmm. that like the lowliest person that you see you might see them every day mm-hmm. um you might it could be a grocery clerk it could be whatever like they don't mean nearly as much to your life as say your significant other or whatever but that doesn't mean they're not a real person it doesn't mean That's that awesome. they're not 
that they are valueless and that that they don't have a life of their own. And uh, now there's a lot of stuff I don't like about this movie. I mean, it dropped out of my top 10. It was in my top 10 shortly. And then it dropped out because I thought more about it. Uh Um, I don't like a lot of those stories. I think it's some of the dialogue is clunky as hell. Like there's a, but there are, but you know, but I still, it's a film that you really do need to look at in the overall. um, I think Um, you got to look at the, the big picture and in the uh, in that way i loved it i thought musicals was beautiful i thought it was put together edited well and all that the thing that you're talking about is something that i and i hate to be the kind of i should judge the movie as the movie yeah um but i do think this is in there i just think maybe it's a little more present in my mind because i've read the book Mm -hmm. um if okay so here's how it goes um the there's the thing that's happening on the uh with the ship with the 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 lawyer traveling uh, anyway my favorite tom hanks performances in that story by the way (laughs) um but our experience of that is um ben wishaw's character reading the journal yes and then our experience of ben wishaw's story is holly berry reading the letters or or roof or sixsmith reading the letters about yes i yes um and then um the uh, Holly Berry story is a manuscript that Jim Broadbent's publisher has. Yeah, uh, and and then um, we see that there's a movie made of Jim Broadbent's life starring someone played by Tom Hanks, and then <laughs> and that's watched in the Duna Bayer story, and mm-hmm. the Duna Bayer story is the basis for the religion in the final Tom Hanks story, which is bookended by him telling this story to a bunch of kids so in every instance what we're seeing is a story being told after the fact yeah and so the things that you're talking about about it being maybe a little uh cliche or or not that imaginative i think david mitchell in his book and the wachowskis and tom tickfer are actually intentionally telling stories that are uh familiar because it's i think um adds into the universality of their theme and that's the thing familiarity i'm fine with Uh, as you know i'm a fan of law and order so i'm (laughs) i'm fine with formula and being familiar with something it's just the the way in which and just the dialogue i think is in some stories subpar um and i do have i do you know what like this might also just be a a personal issue of mine that tom hanks uh halle berry like and a couple of the other characters, like, sometimes they play a positive character, sometimes they play a negative character. I kind of like what that communicates as well, but it's like, Hugh Grant and Hugo Weaving are always negative characters. And I, and I don't like I, the idea... I think maybe some people are, and I think Duna Bae is always a positive character. I don't think she ever plays a bad person. Let me think. I can't... T- I, it's been a while since I've seen it. I can't totally remember every character she played. But maybe and maybe that's something I don't like. And maybe it's communicating. It's like you know we're all the same, but there are some, but like and there's always going to be oppressive people, and there's always going to be the innocent, you know. So I guess that I guess it could be communicating that message. Um, but it also like, you know, if you're not careful, someone can look at that message and just say there are some people that are just born bad, <laughs> and they can't help it. Like they can't help it, but I don't have to like it. So fuck them. Like. If you're not careful, that could be the message that comes across, especially in a, in, yeah, in a message about universality and stuff and like, hey, we're all connected except the, for these fuckers over here. <laughs> like, it could be that that kind of thing if taken the wrong way. I see. Okay. So, okay. Um, I feel like there's more, but we've gone too long anyway. What uh, What is your number four? My number four, we can probably not talk super long about it because we 
covered it a few weeks ago. Uh, Queen of Versailles. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, documentary um, about... I feel like I don't want to talk about it because we went into a fair amount of detail about it a few uh, a few weeks ago. But um, so it's about uh, this uh, woman who married into a very uh, ma- married this very rich man, and they have a family, and he's much older than her. She very much, and she's very attractive and, and you know buxom and all that, and she's <laughs> just that the trophy wife kind of thing. Uh, and so it's the documentary ostensibly at first about them building the largest house in the country uh based on versailles and then and this is about 2008 and mm-hmm. uh then there's the uh well all kinds of collapses actually yeah. and uh, and so suddenly they certainly can't finish that but they also have to cut back and so you know you and the thing i like about it is precisely like you go in expecting it be like hey look at these stupid rich people but it has a remarkably it's remarkably fair-minded um, and it recognized that, like, sometimes, like, yes, this woman is tacky, but that doesn't make her a bad person. Yes, she is out of touch. That doesn't make her a bad person. You know, her husband, I think, is, it's interesting. I was talking with, because Jen, I watched it with her. She loves the movie. She has much more sympathy for that, for the the husband than I do, because she's like, you know, in the end, like, yes, he's, he's crotchety and he's, and he's a little selfish at times. Mm-hmm. But, like, he's also, pardon the expression, old. You know what I mean? Like, in your old age, you don't expect to suddenly have to deal with all... Now, of course, he did bring it on himself. But, like, you don't have to... You don't expect having to deal with all these kids. You don't expect you, you, to have to, like, worry about your, your company crumbling. Mm-hmm. And having to adopt maybe a new business model because it is crumbling. Like, all this... And so, like, the stress makes him into something of an asshole. But, like, Jen... You know, she showed like she's like there's enough in that movie to sympathize with everybody in that film, and even things like I think it is a very important yes okay so like politically I'm conservative that doesn't necessarily mean I have to love the rich but and doesn't necessarily mean I I defend the rich but I don't knee jerk condemn the rich not to imply that liberals do but like you know with all the talk of like the one percent and the ninety nine percent it's like it's very easy to demonize the one percent and fair enough. Um but I think this movie came out at just the right time because you see that, like, well, that, that what's her name, Jackie? Uh, that sounds right. But yeah. She's more. the 1%, and she's not a terrible person. Incidentally, their limo driver was part of the 1% mm-hmm. and dropped out of it. And now he's just a middle-class guy. And it just and it makes you realize, like, they are all just people. Some of them might be out of touch. Some of them, as we talked about with... The Even the ones who the are rich. good people might be out of touch. That's another yeah. wrinkle to that. Yeah. yeah, and so I just I just like that it's any film that really just celebrates like you know you're really not that much better than anybody else, and the people you are most like it's one of the reasons I hate Struck by Lightning uh-huh. is like the people that you are most inclined and it is most acceptable to have no sympathy for might be the people that at any given point they might require more of your sympathy for whatever reason. So there All you right. go. Number three. For me. Um, and this will be the third and final movie that I hope gets thought of as a 2013 movie. Okay. Because as far as I know, it doesn't actually have a dis- distributor um, huh. in the U.S. Uh, but I've talked about it on here before. I wrote a review of it. Um, the name of the movie is not actually Ghost Tank, but it should be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's called White Tiger. Okay. And um, it's the... It's... It, 
you know, in a year with a Les Rob and a Cloud Atlas and uh, all the all this audacity, it might be the most nuts movie out there because it doesn't like it's not playing things like it's nuts. It's just let me because it's been a quite a while since I mentioned the show, so I'll again run down quickly what the story of the movie is. Um, there, it's 1943, and Russia in general is winning the war, uh, beating beating the Germans. But they keep losing these battles, these tank battles, because this mysterious uh, German tank that they call the White Tiger because it's painted uh, white-ish. It's, it gets dirty from rolling around, so it's yeah. not pure white. Um, keeps appearing like a phantom behind their lines and blowing up their tanks from behind, and then going off into the woods and or into a swamp and then just disappearing. So it's essentially a ghost tank. Mm. Um, the driver of one of the tanks that it, that gets destroyed is um, uh, he should be dead. He's completely burnt on 98% of his body or something, but he feels no pain. He goes from being literally blackened, a blackened person because he's charred, to be looking normal again in a couple of weeks. Hmm. He also has no memory of who he was before the ghost tank uh, blew him up. But he has emerged from this with the ability, essentially, to commune with tanks. He he can understand them. He can predict where the ghost tank... Again, they don't call it. They call it the White Tiger. But th- he can predict where the ghost tank is going to show up. Uh, and so they let him... They give him a modified tank, let him handpick a crew, and they send him on a mission to go out and find and destroy... The White Tiger. It's like Master and Commander if that other ship was a ghost tank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which by the way would sink right to the bottom of the ocean. Um and I mean that right there is crazy. There's also just But it's all the right kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um it's also told with not the not a hint of a wink. It is this is a this is a very straightforward and very serious movie. Um and it's actually I mean uh Theoretically, uh, theoretically, theoretically, I think Nadenoff. No, maybe that. I can't remember the guy's, the character's name, who is the driver who, who gets assigned. Uh, seemingly, he's the main character, but really, the the Russian uh, military also assigns an officer to like, because this guy's just he's a very low-ranking tank driver. They assign an uh, upper officer to accompany him and keep an eye on him, and and the way that this guy goes from like his experiences in viewing all this stuff that happens, all this crazy stuff is really kind of the story of the film. It's really, he's really more the main character. Um, so, uh, so there's no way for people to see this movie right now. Uh, no, I, I hope that there's a Blu-ray, uh, soon cause I will buy it because it will sound awesome on my sound system <laughs> because the other thing that happens. Okay. So the, the idea here is that, okay. One of the other things that, the, a motif in the movie because it's Russians and Germans and often there are prisoners of war or there are like negotiations of treaties or stuff and in any, every case everything has to be translated everything the Russian says has to be translated to German and the German has to respond and it has to be translated back to Russian and in every case the movie the director whose name is Karen something uh, takes uh, great care to show you she doesn't find a way i don't know if it's just she i'm guessing karen is she but i don't know um to, hard to know yeah with russian it could yeah. be uh, anyway so the director doesn't cut find a way to make any shortcuts every translation on both sides is included in every one of these uh but then when you get to the battle scenes 
even though we know that the driver is driving the the way the battle scenes are presented there's very little very few shots inside the tank and there are no shots inside the tank of the white tiger because for all we know it is sentient um and so you've just got tanks shooting at each other and the sound design is so great it is so incredibly loud when these tanks are shooting each other and that's their way of communicating you don't need any translators yeah. and so the idea is saying that as this guy this driver is becoming more like a tank he is actually sort of maybe evolving maybe reaching closer to the idea of the singularity that we will become one with our technology and become immortal uh and or we might just become tanks yeah or we could just become tanks yeah and so machines and their uh less messy way of communicating with one another might be a step forward and uh that might be what we're going for and the fact that all this is in this movie that i should also make sure to i wish i could like show you a screenshot when the name of the movie white tiger comes up it clearly looks like a like late 40s b movie like it's splashed across the screen and like white tiger but it uh and, and i think uh that would be if i were able to pick up distribution that would be my way of selling it i i would i would play up the sort of like uh uh genre b-movie-ness of it because that's what's exciting but it also is a very ponderous movie uh and very strange now my responses have been mostly like droll and like jokey but this sounds great and it i really so do hope that it gets uh yeah distribution it's so great okay all right what's your number three my number three is craig zobel's compliance ah uh Good featuring film. uh full disclosure friend of the show pat healy right that is not why it is there any more than why entrance was my number 10 last year and we had dallas and patrick on the show um right. Yeah. Wait, had we already had Dallas and Patrick on when you did that? I think I don't think so, actually. Okay. Um, but we knew them at that point. So, uh, okay. Compliance. Uh, it's interesting. I'm no, I, going back and forth between our lists and then looking at my list specifically, I find myself noticing certain themes. Maybe it's just a theme of like movies that were released this year. Um, and one is human nature. That's one I keep coming back to over and over. But then the other is just artifice and pretense. Okay? Because, let's see, what do we got? We've got Anna Karenina, we've got Holy Motors, we've got Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, Cloud Atlas. Like, we've Seven got Psychopaths all th- would also fit into this oh, uh, I idea. S- I never saw it. I didn't like it very much, but okay. it does fit into the notion. I feel like I might enjoy it. But, um, but yeah, it's just this idea of like people. Something is being layered on. There's what there's what is, and there's what is perceived. And sometimes it's conscious. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a character within a movie. Sometimes it's the director of the movie. But it just seems to just this idea of like there's more going on than what we thought um and per- i don't know perhaps that is a perhaps it's a response to if i might get slightly political perhaps it's a response to uh general disappointment with the uh economy at the moment and not not purely the economy but frankly like i know a lot of people that yes okay i'm not saying this because i'm a freaking conservative i'm saying it because there are a lot of i'm saying it because paula Tompkins actually said uh that like he mentioned that he is liberal and he's uh, a Democrat and he voted for Barack Obama and that he is 
mostly disappointed in him mm-hmm. as and, and many people seem to be and uh i voted for him and and i wound up being rather disappointed myself and so it's this idea and and when you think about what that was in 2008 there's a whole 30 rock episode about this um in 2008 like voting for this man was like this amazing thing and mm-hmm. it, and it represented it was all about what this represented a giant step forward in a number of ways and then you realize like i said with killing them softly eh, it's not that different really when yeah. it comes right down to it things might be a little bit better they might be a little bit worse depending on who you talk to but in the end eh, people are still kind of worrying about the same things mm-hmm. so and so it's just like so there's what was promised what was presented and what what the actual reality is okay and so some of that could come down to gullibility and but more specifically a desire to believe and here we come to compliance um where i think it's a film that there are people that hate it i liked all that by the way thank you um did you did you yeah. like that or you, you were smiling the whole time and i thought you might be laughing at me no no not at all okay i liked it so you saw compliance right yeah okay um one of the reasons I like it is not unlike uh, the reason my, my reason for liking Queen of Versailles. I think it's a non it's totally non-judgmental, not of the actions. It's very judgmental of the actions. But it seems to understand that like people can do this anywhere uh, because people did. And it's not just it didn't just happen once, it happened many times. People can do this. It explores why they might do this, what the certain circumstances are that caused this character to do it. Um and basically everybody just kind of going along because it's what is comfortable. Even if you're doing something incredibly uncomfortable, philosophically it's more comfortable to say like, well, I was told to, so I'm just going to do it. And that includes the victim. She uh-huh. protests and protests, and then after a certain point, she doesn't protest anymore because she just goes along with it. It's like, this is a terrible thing that's, what, that, this is a terrible thing that's happening to me, but what's the point ultimately? What, what am I going to do? Fight against this? It's right. going to happen either way, so let's just go with it. Which is, a, of course, a, a, such a tragic attitude. Um, but, like, it's just people just going along with it, as any of us will, in some aspect of our life. And I think it's, and I think it's brilliantly played. I thought it was genius for Craig Zobel to cast mostly no names. No offense to Pat Healy, but he's not famous. Right. Um, or Dream of Walker, who is somewhat known because she's on don't trust the bee in apartment 23 mm-hmm. but that but she was not at the time of the i film. always say don't trust the bitch in apartment 23 not because i like saying the word bitch because i don't like it when it, the show name rhymes yeah i hate that rhyme so i yeah. always say bitch yeah i don't like saying the title in general so <laughs> but uh but just casting it with like just people that just see and people that seem likable and are likable you know um Anne Dowd. Is it Anne Dowd? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I couldn't think of her name right away. Uh, like, I think she's wonderful. I'll probably talk about her in a couple weeks. Um, as just creating this really realistic woman who just wants... I mean, th- And the film does such a good job of just creating a reality we can all recognize. Like, maybe not all of us worked in fast food. I worked in uh, a pizza place for a short time. Uh, and some of it, at some point we've probably all worked customer service and we recognize certain things. Um, and she just captures that in her performance. Um, just the idea of like what it's her job to hold everybody to a high standard at a pizza, at a, at a chicken place. So ultimately who gives a shit? Mm-hmm. They certainly don't. The customers probably don't. And she doesn't really herself either. But again, 
she has to put on this this face and so and just it just everything just keeps chugging along towards like the absolute worst thing that could happen mm-hmm. and uh and the whole and the whole time it's only ever saying it's like it's like the idea it's it you know to bring up a, a, a kind of a christian uh saying uh hate the sin but not the sinner you know and so it's basically saying like everything they're doing is terrible and they might be terrible for doing it in the moment but it's nothing but you the viewer could do this in the right circumstances yeah and uh and i like that it's a very it's it's a deeply disturbing notion but man i i i responded to it in a lot of ways so compliance did you want to say anything about it you saw it no i i think you you got it um number two for me ang lee's life of pi okay uh which is um i will paraphrase uh myself from my review of it uh uh, a lot of people are rightly saying that it makes a case for the artistic power of 3D. It, it does that. But I also think the movie just makes a case for cinema itself. Because it's... Um, again, it's about storytelling. It's bookended by Irfan Khan telling a story. Um, and I was going to say something else, but I feel like we need to do an episode... I would like to do an episode, or, or maybe a mini-episode, where we just say, like, alright, spoilers for Life of Pi. And then okay. just talk about the ending because yeah, I yeah. want to talk about the ending so much. But anyway, I can't do that. Uh, so it's about storytelling, and and but I guess, well, I guess what I want to get at is he's Irfan kind of is telling the stories when they happened to him when he was younger, but uh, because he's telling this, he's the only person in the story, mm-hmm. uh, at least at, uh, after a certain point, um, and he's the one telling it. He is an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing, it certainly doesn't look like real life. Yeah. Um, and people even, like, do they do doubt his, his story. Um, but that's, all, that's, that's sort of... That's what storytelling can do. It can get across an idea or an emotion um, that maybe harder to pick out of the the vagaries and particulars of real life uh if you heighten things or if you make things up you know sometimes sometimes not saying exactly what happened is a better way to get to the emotional truth of a story mm-hmm. i know i do that when i tell stories about uh, something that happened in my life i will often like i'll cut a corner because i think if i tell this the way it actually happened that will distract from the actual emotional truth of the memory that i'm relating right um, and it can make you look really good if you sh- shave off certain edges. <laughs> yes, it can. Um, and, and, and so uh, Ang Lee makes this film about storytelling that is also uh, does things that you can only do in cinema. Uh, the and only do in cinema in 2012. The 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 strength of the of the 3D, the movements of the camera, the integration of of CGI and and in real life. You know, there's um there's no okay, this isn't a spoiler to say that a a big boat sinks very mm-hmm. early on. Um or rather, not as early on as I was expecting. There's a lot in that first act that I didn't know was going to be in there that I liked. Yeah. Uh that I feel like some people don't like because I think they just wanted to get to him on the boat with the tiger. But 
Which is an understandable impulse, by the way, <laughs> yeah. to want that. Um, but there's the big boat that sinks before he's in the lifeboat. Um, and that sequence is, especially in a movie theater, so terrifying. Uh, and I also... Um, and the other thing this makes the case for, which most people probably didn't get to see this, this is the only film that I've seen with the uh, Dolby Atmos um, hmm. sound system, which I don't know if you know what that is. Hmm. It's like surround sound like you normally get there's speakers all along the walls that you normally get but there's also speakers on the ceiling so you're kind wow. of yeah you're i bet that movie was great with that yeah yeah um and I, I think the first movie that was released with atmos was brave but uh life of pi also did it um and and, and uh but you also so yeah it's uh it's it's gorgeous and it's terrifying but it's also it'd be hard to watch that sequence frame by frame and pick out okay this is real this is a visual effect mm-hmm. y- you know um and uh i think we all need to be okay with the fact that that's the way movies are now that that uh and actually amazing things can be done like life of pi well and if you yeah them. if you do it right well some of it is the responsibility of the of the audience to just kind of accept things <laughs> and just like you said accept that this is this is filmmaking now. Uh-huh. Um, but also, like, you know, if you do it right, which Ang Lee does, like, after a certain point, you just sort of accept it all. Yeah. Like, it, it all just, it's like, well, that doesn't look totally real, but who gives a shit? Like, it's yeah. just, it, I, I don't want it to be real. I'm fine with the... Yeah, the, 1933 the f- King Kong doesn't look totally real, but <laughs> yeah. it's a good movie, so you buy into it. Yeah. Um, anyway, I won't go on much longer just to say that it's beautiful. It does things with 3D that uh, I think had been done before, but that I hadn't really seen, where... Um, uh, the aspect ratio changes so that th- things are not only 3D but they're also leaving the frame mm-hmm. you know there's the part with the flying fish where like yeah. they're actually leaving the frame of the movie yeah. because the aspect ratio has, has changed for that sequence and I, uh, again I, when I describe it and I say it out loud I feel like it sounds really gimmicky but it really works um, and also it's uh, a word that keeps coming up with uh, or an idea that keeps coming up with more with Cloud Atlas is humanism. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a story of a, of a boy who has suffered some of the worst of nature and some of the worst of humanity. Um, you know, depending on what you think really happened, maybe, you know, some really awful humanity. Yeah. Um, and has come out a, a positive person who believes in the good of people and believes that there's a, that God, whatever his idea of God is, mm-hmm. has a plan or, 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 or you know, cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's, he's faced the, some of the hardest shit a person can face and come out still able to smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's very heartwarming. Yeah. I, I love the movie. I thought it was just so, just so so gorgeous like it's one of those things where it's like i'm sure it'll look great on blu-ray 2d but having seen it 3d it's like oh i wish i had a i wish i had a 3d blu-ray player we could watch it at our friend uh uh frank fumirath mcgrath's house uh he's no friend of mine (laughs) (laughs) he not only he has um he has a a projector screen so i watched uh drag me to hell there a couple weeks ago with him nice uh and it's enormous it's like being kind of in a small theater uh, and it's also 3D capable. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, because it's just because it is. 
that that movie like every once in a while there's a movie that like makes a good argument for 3D and that is one of them yeah um, right, I, saw, two, I saw it just at this uh, the crappy uh, Century 8 over here and it was gorgeous I saw Piranha 3D I think it's the only 3D movie I've seen at that at that theater that, that makes more sense <laughs> <laughs> alright number two for you number two for me much to my surprise Chagrin meh The Avengers alright so um, okay we saw this together. We did. You and I almost never see movies together. I know. What happened to was us? That, is that the last movie we've seen together? Oh, no question. Yeah. And I couldn't tell you the one we saw together before that. Um, the Host? Oh, surely there must have been something. Alliance for Lambs we saw together. That was after <laughs> The Host. Yeah, 2007, we saw Lookout together. We saw Hot Fuzz. Um, surely we must have seen... It's fine. Let's let's not take this uh, sad trip down memory lane. Um <laughs> Or this memory trip down sad lane. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's uh, man. I'm a I'm a sucker for just this. I guess this is my uh, Casa de mi Padre, except that actually has things to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Avengers. I, I I just had a really great time in the theater. Like I was just, and I've seen it. Uh, <laughs> I saw it once more all the way through, and then I saw it once where the end was cut off because I had to leave the theater um, <laughs> because I yelled at some 15 year olds so I wasn't made to leave the theater I opted to leave after that uh, but uh, you can hear that story over on more than one lesson in our in my take shelter episode all about uh, you know a spouse being really patient with another spouse so um, but yeah so I've 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 seen it certainly is not a, a it's not a perfect film there's there's some flaws there's some logical flaws um and, uh, in my opinion, it takes too long to go, get going. Yeah, and you know what? Watching it a few more times, I could see that. Like, so if you're only ever going to watch it once, I think it's fine. Mm-hmm. When you watch it several more times, like, yeah, I got it. I know. <laughs> I, it sounds strange, but and I, I feel like maybe that's a bad attitude to have on, on my part. But it does kind of yeah. have that quality. Um, and so, uh, but it's just so much damn fun. There's, it's just. It, it's Joss Whedon, of course, so it's very witty. Mm-hmm. Um, in the dialogue, obviously. In the uh, ensemble scenes, obviously, but also in the action. Yeah. You know, it's not just perfunctory, get-it-done action. Like, there are, there's a nice... There's a nice rhythm to the action when it chooses to cut to when it chooses to cut to one person, then to another, then to another, when they choose to work together, how quickly that <laughs> works. But then also, like, I was talking with... Uh, friends of the show Jason Eakin and Adam Rebitaro last night and we were talking about uh, the X-Men franchise and how by and large the X-Men has never worked uh, don't get me wrong I like X-Men and I love X-Men 2 pardon me uh, X-Men United Um, is that what it was? yeah I think that's right X2 X-Men United that's the one yeah and so um, so I like them but one thing about the X-Men as the comic book is that they are a team and they usually work as a team but the movies are like okay this is pretty much Wolverine and his buddies <laughs> and so we need to focus on that and I never got a sense of teamwork you get a little bit of it from the Brett Ratner film um, you have to wade through a lot of shit to get there but that's alright <laughs> and so um, no it's not alright it's not worth it and so uh, whereas the Avengers you see actual teamwork and and he is committed to showing us characters like Hawkeye and Black Widow when really audiences going in they didn't come to see those characters I know that sounds mean 
I know I didn't. Like they don't. First off, they don't have their own movies, and they're not as fun to watch. They're just regular people who are kind of good at what they do. But he committed to them because he's committed to the idea of a team, and he sells those characters. Yeah, and I think styles. by the time you're into those scenes, the average audience member isn't like complaining. Like right. get back to Iron Man or Captain America. <laughs> yeah, like. Uh, they're into it. Yeah, and that's a function of him because it would he could have been like, look, we all know these characters aren't that important. Let's keep to the to the 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 names, and so. Um, but yeah, it just it's just so much fun, and it's just such a great superhero movie, such a great action movie, and I feel like it doesn't. There are logical flaws with the plot. I get it, but um, but it doesn't ask you to. There are so many action movies and some are blockbusters that basically say, like, you don't have to... And people even say, like, I don't go into a movie to think. It's like, well, this movie, it doesn't necessarily... It's not, it doesn't require heavy thought, but it also doesn't require you to turn off a lot of your brain. In fact, the more of your brain you keep engaged, the more you'll appreciate some of the lines, some of the dialogue, yeah. and some of the themes. Well, I think you mostly said it all. I just wanted to add that um, one of the, I guess, motifs that I brought up earlier was the idea that in 2012 I had fun at the movies and this movie is a blast. I mean, I talked about like wanting to dance while watching Bad 25. There are, there are parts of the Avengers where I wanted to stand up and cheer. Oh, yeah. And people in our theater did. Now, it was a, it was a critic screening. Admittedly, it was critics plus one, so I'm sure they brought family members and stuff. But it's pretty rare for applause to break out in what is uh, pretty much a, a, ostensibly a critic screening. So all right. and it happened several times. All right, here we go. Number one of the year. I know what it is. I know you know. And I don't know why you're so disappointed. Uh, but I guess we'll get to that. Yeah. My number one movie of the year, the movie I've seen, uh, paid to see three times. I have not, didn't even get a, uh, a press screening of, of this. We got one. Matt went. Uh, is Django Unchained. That is not what I expected you to say. Really? Yeah. What did you think I was going to say? Lincoln. Oh wow! No, that's not just the the sheer amount of times that you have like going out of your way to watch Lincoln, and the way you talk about it. I've seen Lincoln it, twice. Really I've seen Django you, three times. Okay, and then when you, it's like, well, I don't think you paid to see Lincoln. So what's he talking? Oh, yeah. So okay, uh, I'm not disappointed anymore. Okay, it's Django Unchained. I mean, talk about fun, but also okay. Also, I talked about. Casa de mi Padre and the comedy as being the highest ranking comedies on my list but the funniest movie of the year is Django Unchained in my opinion I laughed more at Django Unchained most of those lines are things that I will not repeat on the podcast yeah um, it's, it's a shame it's the most Django Unchained is the most quotable movie that I can't quote because <laughs> there's a yeah uh, but then I mean there are lots of funny lines that I that I can say uh, of course you know such as uh, hang on I'm fucking with my eye holes um, <laughs> <laughs> and just that whole scene but also um my it's it's i think i said this on the podcast and i always said it to you it's my favorite performance ever by leonardo dicaprio uh i really feel like he's set aside some of the self-consciousness i think that gets into his into his roles he's yeah. he's really just like letting loose in a way you don't he's not an actor you you think of as letting loose he tends to play i think that's why he tends to play characters who are often like mourning or remorseful yeah, about something dour. because it allows him to check himself you know yeah. because he's playing characters that aren't necessarily extroverted whereas this guy uh can't stop talking and yelling and weirdly kissing his sister and <laughs> all, all kinds of insane stuff uh, and i love it and so one of my other possibly my favorite line in the movie 
is at the end of a very very tense scene he says that he and i won't deliver it as perfectly he does but he's like if you if you care to join me for dessert we are having white cake (laughs) (laughs) and here's here's the thing if you if i had said to you 10 maybe even five years ago Uh you know who's going to be a who's who is really good at delivering Tarantino dialogue, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't believe me. Yeah. I wouldn't believe me. I would assume I was lying. Yeah. And so, like, uh, but he's, he, and we'll we'll talk about, like, you know, Christoph Waltz and all that in, in a moment, but, like, yeah, he, I mean, he, the, the DiCaprio intensity is still there, but it's channeled into such different places. But, and, and then when he has his, you know, horrifying monologue about, the dents in the skull about phrenology yeah yeah like and 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 just and and just layering on i mean it's it's classic tarantino uh inglorious bastards jew hunter stuff but like uh just just the rage that the character is feeling but here's the difference between calvin candy and um hans landa Mm -hmm. because when hans landa talks about the jews being rats and how he has to think like a rat to find a, a a jew he he believes what he's saying Whereas I get the impression, having seen it three times, that Calvin Candy is trying to convince himself. Because he has that whole, like, idea of, um, that he talks about, like, there are so many more slaves on my plantation than there are white people. Why don't they all rise up and kill us? Yeah. And um, he really does, I think he's a guy who um, has, his entire life and his family's entire, most of its history... Mm-hmm. Uh, depends on this on slavery but he's um, so he's both used to the savagery uh, and the just the horribleness of it but also he's aware enough that that he keeps coming he he, he, he needs to come up with an explanation to because he's uh, he he's I think he's he, he would be He's far too set in his ways to ever change. So instead, he looks for justification for the way the world works. Because the way the world works is working out for him. Yes. He's, he's very, very wealthy. He owns, what do they say, the fourth biggest plantation in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it, I think there's a part of him that, that knows it's wrong, he, that it's wrong. And it nags at him. That's why he's always coming. Because even before the phrenology thing, he talks about um, the exceptional, uh, well, he doesn't say Negro, but I'll say Negro for the, yeah. And, That's and, very polite of you. Yeah, and the idea that um, you know uh, that's how he could justify someone like Django, who acts with more agency yeah. than um, the slaves he knows, uh, and and and, uh, and so he justifies this idea. He always comes up with these uh, ideas, and also away from you know when he's. Um, when we first meet him in, I can't remember what town it is in Mississippi, but he's in town, mm-hmm. um, and he relates to a few black characters, all slaves there, um, and he relates to them in the way that one would maybe sort of come to ex- expect to see in a movie, the way that a slave master would talk to his yeah. slaves. He's ordering them around, giving them orders, or condescending to them. Yeah. Um, you get back to his house, and you realize that this person, Stephen, that Samuel Jackson plays... It's again that very, that very muddy line between, uh, you know, Calvin Candy owns Stephen, mm-hmm. is is the slave master, 
but also, Stephen has probably been raising Calvin since he was a tiny little kid. Yeah. Uh, and they have a very odd and very fascinating relationship. Yeah. And that's and, that the the complexity of that relationship and the complexity of, of Calvin Candy, because while I do think he's not totally on board with what he's saying, and which makes the speech he's giving all the worse because he's saying it at them. Like, uh-huh. he's he's really playing it up. I'm not sure if he, like you said, like, you, you think he, he might think it's wrong. I don't think it's nearly as conscious as that. I think he has a nagging feeling that maybe some maybe this isn't correct. I think that's but what I, I meant. Think, okay, all right. I just, uh... Yeah, I don't think he would ever admit to himself that he, yeah, that he is capable of treating black people as equal to white people, which yeah. is which, but which he is. Yeah, we we see it not only with Samuel Jackson, but there's also the other character whose name I can't remember. Who when he tells the everyone yeah. to leave and she stays, and she's like, "I know you didn't mean me." <laughs> uh, I like her a lot. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but, but, that, also, the, but that relationship is like one of the one of the most complex things tarantino has ever done one of the most complex things you're gonna see in theaters maybe ever uh-huh. and one of the most like mm. not disturbing but just just uncomfortably perplexing yeah because you're just like no this does not fit uh-huh. with what i know and what and that i think brings me to my next point is that i say that all in a good way by the way um now we're not going to get into or at least i don't care to get into the discussion of whether or not Tarantino has the right to make this movie. I don't care about that discussion. I think that he does. I think that anybody does. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I don't want to discuss it at any length. Um, but what I do want to discuss is that, you know, if you if you think about movies about slavery, you think about maybe Glory, maybe Amistad. Um, uh, I mean, Roots. Well, Roots isn't a movie, but yeah, that's... Right. That's one of the few exceptions. As much... Slavery is a, one of the worst thing that's, things that's ever taken place in human history. Mm-hmm. And it lasted way, way longer than, say, the Holocaust. Yeah. But there's 75 million movies a year about the Holocaust. Um, it really feels like anytime if I go into a movie, like a press screening, and I don't know what it's about, it turns out it's about the Holocaust. Yeah. In some way, it's a pretty common thing. But how many movies actually depict slave life like plantation life you it's not something that you see yeah and it's very rare and um the fact that tarantino jumped into it with both feet um and also did it in a very tarantino way which is to make the movie funny and exciting and action-packed but i also think when it counts and even in other smaller ways when it's being funny does not in any way soft sell or blink or turn away from how uh, brutal and dehumanizing um, right. slavery is. You see actual physical brutality, slaves made to fight each other, you know. Yeah. Uh, Which is specifically know, not stylized as opposed to the gunfights. Yes, exactly. That's, I'm gl- I, I knew that in my head, and I'm glad you said it because I wouldn't have said that. But yeah, you're right. That, that part is... You know, whenever people talk about... Because I, I talk, I've talked to people about the movie a lot. I've seen it three different times. Um, people, they always... When they say, there's one part I had to cover my eyes, they're always talking about a different part than I am. Um, they're talking about 
anyway, there's a there's just for those I won't give anything away. There's a slave named D'Artagnan. Yeah, that's the scene they're talking about, and that is oh, yeah. it is horrifying. But the one that I'm not a person who looks away from the movie, away from a movie, but I did look away from the slaves fighting each other. It was that yeah the da- I mean, the, the D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan thing. yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, that part, it's, it actually doesn't go into a whole, it's not remarkably graphic. I Until mean, you flash back to it later. Yeah, that's that true, is. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the slaves, like, because, I mean, that, that part is more drawn out than you think it's going to be. Yeah. And it is, man. Uh, and so in those very specific ways, he, uh, and you know, you see people being whipped and, and, um, and being, yeah, you see people being whipped. So you see very very literal depictions of brutality uh, to slaves. But you also see the way, the de- when I talk about the dehumanization, the way that these these people have, they have lived like this for generations. It's become ingrained that this is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see a lot of, you see, not for the audience or for for any other reason, black people talking about other black people the way that white people talk about black people in the movie. Yeah. You see that a lot. Going back to um, one of the very funny exchanges on... Uh, Don Johnson plays a character named Big Daddy. Yeah. And there's a... He has a slave named Bettina who is unclear what the protocol is with Django because Django is a free man. Yeah. And um, it's a very funny scene, a funny exchange. Yeah. But it also speaks a lot to the 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 long-term dehumanization of these people um and then another because because all that is apparently not ballsy enough for quentin tarantino Mm -hmm. he goes another step with the steven character and even with the django the character django is playing if that makes yeah yeah and people who've seen the movie know what i'm talking about because he's he's his name is django but there's he's taking on different personas yeah uh kind of like in cloud atlas or holy motors um uh, you see with them that that there's a certain amount of dehumanization or a certain amount of of uh, being uh, I don't know um, uh, of of being complicit in keeping uh, being a black person who is complicit in keeping other black people down that Tarantino does not let and other characters do not let off the hook and I think for a white director to say that there are some uh, that there were some slaves under slavery who behaved irresponsibly towards other black people is astoundingly ballsy yeah it reminds me did you ever see that movie the gray zone no directed i directed by uh, tim blake nelson i believe um, yeah, and that is about, about yeah. yeah and it's about you know the uh, jews during the holocaust who basically as a way of saving their own their own lives and maybe the lives of their family wound up doing uh, like working sort of for the nazis in the not in the concentration camps yeah even yeah. like insofar as like I don't think they actually killed other Jews, but like, like, calm, like keeping everybody calm while they are being marched to their death and yeah, stuff like yeah. that, and just and viewed as just like, like imagine now. Of course, that's a very somber film and and is v- treated very uh, treated as such. Um, but like, imagine if somebody, I was going to say, imagine Mel Gibson, except. Uh, Except Tarantino has not come out and said, I don't like black people. So <laughs> right. it's not exactly the same. But imagine somebody that like that has not earned that any kind of cred in yeah. that. And he makes this really stylized, funny 
thing in which he really condemns like those Jews as opposed to the the gray zone which I think understandably says like hey if if everyone's gonna die anyway then do you owe it to yourself and your family to do what you can to keep them alive Mm -hmm. like that's the question that should be asked and and that's fine but yeah this uh, and just like you know, like these slaves, like, like, like Stephen, like they're just the the system has so I won't even say brainwashed them. It's just they're it's just soaked into them at this point. Right. That the idea that they could break free psychologically is not even not even open to them, and that's a that's a, that's a tragedy. But the fact that that when you think about it, I'll put it in video game terms. Stephen is the last boss villain. Uh huh. The f- like, it's not. Spo- yeah, you think it's going to be a number. You of think other- it's going to be any number of people. It's not. It's him. Yeah. And it's like what the hell? Like that's <laughs> r- that's rough. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's brilliant. And it, mm-hmm. I, I just, yeah. And and we haven't spoken really about uh, Christoph Waltz. Now, let me ask you this regarding some of the controversy about the film. That in this film about slavery, um, that. The the white villain, the black villain, and then the white hero are in many ways more interesting than the black hero. Um, I still th- that's not on Jamie Foxx, and it's not the way the character's written. Yeah, I I, I think the fact is okay. Tarantino is essentially as he as he fully nods to, um, he he is stealing from. Legend. He's telling the story of the uh, the Nibelungen, the yeah. of of uh, Sieg, Siegfried and Brumhilda. Yeah. Uh, and so Django doesn't have to be the most interesting. He's the hero in right. a very classical sense, and I think. Um. <laughs> I mean, the idea of taking a German legend and making a, a black former slave the hero of it yeah. and, and making the, the, the damsel in distress um, also black is uh, reason enough for that to happen. And I, But I do think... I was thinking earlier when we were talking about how verbose DiCaprio's character is, I was thinking about how taciturn Django is. Yeah. Um, which is... Which is understandable. Yeah, but also surprising for... Um, uh, for Tarantino, yeah, um, but I don't think. But I, yeah, I, I, I think that um, the power of this hero's journey and motivation, and what that, um, and the, uh, the respect for uh, for all races that that shows overpowers whatever controversy you might be talking about. Yeah. That that, anyway. and I do have another another uh, question. I'm sorry. Well, let me okay. let me. Uh, because the other thing I want to talk about, another thing that Tarantino doesn't normally write is um, helpless women in need of rescue. Yeah. That's not a normal character for him. Yeah. Um, and I think he does so very well here with with Brumhilda. Um, and I think also, again, the fact of who this damsel in distress is, who the princess is in this story, that it's a slave with... a uh, R for runaway, like branded into her cheek, yeah. is uh, very powerful and worth that. the The iconography of that is worth uh, 
uh, writing a maybe throwback female character. Yeah. To me. I'm not uh, little... Let me ask you this. We've, we've said on the show, and it's been a while since we've talked about it, but like the work of like, uh, like an Edwards Wick, which I sometimes find frustrating for a number of reasons. Um, <laughs> and I like his... I, I like his... Lack of nuance. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but like you know, Glory, uh, The Last Samurai, and then Blood Diamond. Like those three specifically, the main character, in many ways, should be a not. I won't say minority because in Last Samurai they're not the you minority. Mean, it, it should be Denzel Washington or Morgan Freeman. It should be Ken Watanabe or it should be Jimin Henso. Yes, but it isn't. They are always supporting, and by the way, always nominated, if not winners, <laughs> um, which I find fascinating. Um, but, uh, but it's always like the, the white person, and, and one could say the audience surrogate. And so maybe he's making a point. And I think that's what it is. Okay. That's what with, I've always... With, with, okay. That, that's so, what I think it is with Edward Zwick. Okay. And so, like, and in this instance, like, the idea of, like, Django is such a strong, powerful, and, and capable character. Um, Sorry, strong and capable, not yeah. strong, incapable. No, I didn't really hit the end. Um, that, what do you think? And by the way, I'm I'm merely asking questions. I don't actually think of the things that I'm that I'm saying. Um, like, what do you think of the fact that, like, you know, King Schultz is really the one that sets it all in motion and the one who trains Django to do all the things that. Uh, that he is able to do. Django wouldn't have had any training. I think that's something Tarantino's commenting on, that yeah. um, that he is both a man, because he's a man, mm-hmm. but also a child, because his conditions up till then have okay. forced him to remain a child. The part where he... I mean, there's parts where he is learning to read, yeah. um, that he's very childlike, but also the part where he wants to be told the story of the Nibelungen is... Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that gets to the next thing I want to talk about is we're talking about the taciturn and uh, perf- uh, performance and, and the nature of him being a sort of legendary hero and we're making it seem maybe like Django is one dimensional uh, or two dimensional but it's a it's a fantastic performance from Jimmy Fox as well. Yeah. And, it's a shame he's being over that yeah. he was just overshadowed by all and, the other more colorful characters. Yeah, um, and uh, that part where he sits down and wants to be told the story is a great bit of uh, acting. Um, Without, I mean, he he says words, mm-hmm. but beyond what he's saying, he is really acting it up <laughs> in a really, uh, really great way. Well, and also, so to talk about the ending, and I'm sorry we're spending so much time on it, but it is your favorite movie of the year. Yeah, yeah. But um, the ending, which I, I'm one of the people that thinks like, eh, it's not totally necessary, but it is to a certain extent because it shows Django truly empowered at this point. Like, it, don't get me wrong, the first shootout... He's pretty empowered there, but like, but this is like now he is totally he makes his choices now, yeah. And so, so I do think it's I do think it's necessary, um, and the the scene that people tend not to like, which in, which includes a uh, director's cameo, um, like, I yeah. Mean, even even what, among people who like the movie, I have to defend that that stuff. Well, it's. I think people really lock into like that cameo. The scene itself, I think, is very interesting because like you see just how far Django has come and how much he has learned from yeah. from King. Because now he's totally he is at that point. It is proven that in many, like we've seen him be able to shoot, yeah, but we haven't seen him be able to talk like that, yeah, um, or at least independently of King. And so now he can. He is truly 
Yeah, I, you're hitting on exactly why that last half hour that a lot of people say the film doesn't need, it absolutely needs yeah. it for that for that reason. For, for story purposes, not necessary. For character purposes, totally imperative. Right, I see what you're saying. Yes, so. yes. Um, and, you know, we, we've talked so much about the heavy stuff in this movie, but it's the most... The reason I've seen it three times, it's the most fun movie yeah. of the year. And we've barely talked about the first half of the movie at all. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that's uh, yeah, a lot a lot of fun. Don Johnson is amazing. Yeah, I like I like. I'm very happy that with like Eastbound Down, Eastbound and Down, and this like Don Johnson is reinventing his role as a comic relief character actor, and I think that's awesome. Yeah, that's great, especially with a character like that. And admittedly, the character is written funny, but like a character like that, they could have just made him just like such an obvious just bad guy, and he is a bad guy. But oh, he's yeah. He's a certain type of bad guy, and and just what he and then the Klansmen like represent. They represent kind of. I don't of think this... they're technically Klansmen. Oh, pardon me. I'm sorry. What? Are, just. Uh, I'm not Mountain. sure when the clan was formed, okay. but I think yeah, there is a um, sort of precursor. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they they came up after the Civil War, but like, like they are the silly, ridiculous, ignorant part of racism. Yeah. And then you see the ugly dangerous still ignorant part yeah. of racism and so i feel like setting them up as like a non-threat really helps set up uh puff up dicaprio's character yeah. so yeah it's a, a heavy movie that does things that um movies just generally haven't done before it does it all very well and it includes a scene that is essentially a sketch from like monty python oh <laughs> or, yeah no question <laughs> Or maybe out of Blazing Saddles. I that's guess. that's exactly it. I, I Blazing never Saddles actually that. did the. I mean, as much as that movie, like a lot of the humor in that movie, doesn't hold up for me. Mm-hmm. A lot of it also does, and the way that Blazing Saddles, like, um, uh, it poked fun. It it included black stereotypes and uh, Chinese stereotypes and all these stereotypes. Yeah. But the people who get it the worst are the dumb white racists. Yeah. They they get both barrels, and yeah. and so that that scene that we're talking that we're referring to. Uh, that proto clan scene that's very funny feels like it could be out of the best parts of Blazing Saddles. And you know, there were times in the film when I was like uncomfortable, and part of me is like, "Why am I laughing so much at this clan scene?" And then I was like, ex- "It's like exactly <laughs> like stop being so like stop being so uncomfortable." Admittedly, of course, it's a terrible thing, but like you know, it's that le- it's that discomfort that makes it made us only be able to list two or three movies about slavery. Yeah. You know, it's like people aren't comfortable talking about it, maybe because they feel like it's like, no, no, I, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about this. Right. I don't. Th- and it's like, sure you are. Yeah. And if you're and a director is allowed to make whatever movie he wants, like you should embrace that. It's fine. So, okay. All right. My number, number one, one for you. I know what it is. Yeah, I know. No, you and always s- have a chip on your shoulder. This is a perfectly valid number one. It's, movie it's a year. very valid number one. I just and and I love all the movies on my top ten, so I'm not ashamed of them. But it's just one of those like every year, like I feel like there's there's one or two that I really like, and other people and other people like as well. But I just really love it, and so I feel not contrarian at all. But it's just like it's like oh look, I'm a snowflake. But like all my all the movies on here are kind of on on other lists and so and number one is not remarkably original but the more i think about it the more i like it and it is uh, paul thomas anderson's the master yeah and when you say i'm not remarkably original you mean because a lot of other people have it on their top 10 yes it no, is a remarkably is, original movie <laughs> yeah the movie itself is original in many many ways um but yeah and, and uh, i feel like i want to when it comes to the master and obviously it's your 
your uh, number one pick, so I'll let you talk. But um, as much as we took a fun movie like Django and talked about all the all the heavy shit in it, my impulse when talking about The Master, which is a very like heavy, ponderous movie, is to talk about how fun and f- fun and funny it is. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you have the same feeling, but uh, I mean, I laughed a lot at the master. Yeah, there's there's some genuinely funny stuff. I think Paul Thomas Anderson recognizes the the need to embrace some of the silliness of the things that he deals with. Like, yeah. I mean, there's there's all there's a fair m- number of laughs, and uh, there will be blood. Oh yeah, that movie gets funny every time I see yeah. it. Yeah, and so like now with this one, a lot of the laughs, like you wind up choking on them because it's just like, oh. <laughs> like I mean, and. I guess we'll just start with Joaquin Phoenix's character because like, you know, it's, so this is, uh, this episode comes out a week before the Oscars and, uh, at this point, it might take you that long to listen to it. Fair (laughs) enough. Yes. Um, it's a fair assumption at this point. It's pretty much a given that Daniel Day Lewis is going to win best actor and he's great. So that's fine. Mm -hmm. But I think as far, I, I can't think of a more fearless perform committed performance than Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. It's like, um, I mean, we often talk about like as we did with Django, like the showier performances get the the more notice, and sometimes it's like, yeah, because it was harder. Like I think, yeah, I, I think Joaquin Phoenix's performance is textbook showy, but that's because it needs to be. That's who the character is. Yeah, it's it's showy in a way that nobody wants, though. Yeah, yeah, it, it is very it, uncomfortable. I say that in a good in, in a good way, obviously. Yeah, um, like. As opposed to like a just an over the top character would be like yeah absolutely you watch this guy like ugh he's having sex with a sand woman you know yeah he's the kind he's the kind of person if I saw a person with his physicality on the other side of a room I would make sure to avoid him oh, because yeah. he looks like he looks like trouble yeah and it is you know and that's the thing like his. his he embodies this character and I say embodies quite you know purposefully because it's not merely cadence it's not merely demeanor it's not necessarily just an accent it is like a full I mean I've you know we've seen Joaquin Phoenix we know he doesn't stand like that we know he doesn't put his hands on his hips like that like we know he doesn't walk like that he has created a character out of whole cloth where one could make the argument he didn't need to like you could have played that character a lot more straightforward, mm-hmm. and it, and it's the the power of the character still would have been there, but like he chose to do this thing that made him that by the way like made him an obvious cause for Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Like you look at that guy, and it's like, and if you have the and if you are operating on the theory that you have the ability to change people, you see that guy, and you're like, if I can get this guy, yeah, I can get anybody. And what I like is, uh, again, to go back to Django Unchained and DiCaprio's character, I also like that um, Freddy, uh, Phoenix's character, wants to believe that he can be changed and that this thing will work for him so much that he sticks with it and fights for it. That He fights harder about it the more that he starts to realize it's not working. I'm thinking yeah. of particularly the scene with... Uh, uh, Kevin J. O'Connor is that his name? Yes. Uh, you know the scene I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, that's um, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. And the film, by the way, for those that were not able to see it, it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray the uh, the 26th, the day after my birthday. Happy birthday to me. Yeah. I believe the same day Holy Motors comes out. Oh, white man! That's, that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a, 
uh, all the shelves at every Best Buy are going to be empty. It's <laughs> <laughs> just going to be a run on these on these movies. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, it, that's the thing. Like the Master is such a. In some ways, I feel like it is impenetrable. Like I don't know why I shit on myself so much for like my reaction to Holy Motors. <laughs> and then I talk about like, oh yeah, the master's great. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, you really think you get it? Right. And that's that's one of the other things. And I don't, by the way. But like, and that's the other thing is like, I you know, there are some people who who are like, oh yeah, I get it. You know, it's it's like I don't think you do. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what you're what you think it's about, but I guarantee you don't get it because I don't think it's a movie that can be easily gotten. Yeah. Um, I agree. The thing that I respond to the most is the relationship. The the this odd brotherly codependent destructive yet also not relationship between Lancaster Dodd and Freddie and just this idea that like these because people went in including me by the way with like oh it's going to be this big like expose about cults and like with a you know like a these nods to Scientology and, and L. Ron Hubbard and stuff. Uh, I'm so happy it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. I'm happy it wanted to be more than that, and in some cases, less than that. Um, Speaking of seemingly less is what I mean. Like what people thought about before. What do you think about uh, before Joaquin Phoenix was cast as Freddy, Jeremy Renner was going to play that role? Oh, I never knew that. Um, I think he could have done some interesting I, things. I would like it. to have... I, I wouldn't trade away Joaquin Phoenix's performance for anything. Right. But if there were like another version of the movie where I could see that, I'd be interested to see it. Yeah, I think I think uh Jeremy Renner is a an interesting enough actor that he could make some I, I think he'd make some interesting choices. Um but uh but I do think you need somebody why was he uh why was he dropped? I think because the movie had some trouble getting made and he signed on to something else. Oh, okay. Basically. Yeah, um, I do think, and again, this is not uh, against Jeremy Renner. Um, he is small. He's a small guy. And you need, like, and also, like, and I'm sure he can be over the top and, and, and showy if he needs to be. But, like, you need somebody that can go toe-to-toe with, with Phil Zimmer Hoffman. Yeah. Like, he's he's no lightweight. Mm-hmm. And so, like, and and... You need somebody that is as, that is committed to being as insane as possible, and I think we've seen over the last few years that's Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, um, but this relationship, I find it so fascinating because it's you recognize that like early on, like this is not a good thing for for anybody. But you also see like both of these men are like feeding good things into each other, maybe not purposefully, but they are. And then you also see that the the these men are both being made in some way better or at least more complete in what they want to be by the other per- by their relationship but the more complete they are the more they have to get away from one another mm. you know what i mean like lancaster dodd like i said he sees this guy as now there is a certain degree of confidant there like he does seem like at peace with this guy maybe because the guy is just so out there that it's like uh, what am I going to do to disappoint the crazy guy? You know? So I think it's some of that. I'm, I'm making a little too much light of it, but like, and so it's this idea. It's like, if I'm going to be what I think I am, then I should be able to do this. And by God, I'm going to. And so he, and, and so the more progress Freddie makes and the more 
Lancaster Dodd's patience is tested, the better he becomes at this thing he wants to be. Freddie, by having somebody and an organization in general, but an individual who is willing to put up with his shit and is so willing to feed into him, even when he is not able Mm -hmm. psychologically to give anything back or to give very little back except the threat of violence. Um, Like he suddenly feels the desire to rise to that challenge and he becomes a stronger, slightly more stable person. But the more stable he gets, the stronger he gets, the more he realizes I can't be a part of this. And so, and that's the thing. And as, and the stronger and more established Lancaster Dodd gets, he realizes I can't have this guy hanging around. And so the two of them, they need each other, but the more complete they become, the more they are driven away. And I think both men are rather heartbroken by it. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a weird tragedy to it because you do see Freddie at the end reverting to to who he was, but still with some of the some of the uh, yeah, yeah. Lancasterisms yeah. Uh, as a part of him. So more than anything, I love that relationship. It's so complex mm-hmm. that I just like I can't get it out of my head. And you know, I mean, what you just described is kind of a story, but um, Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't. He focuses on the sort of emotional story of the relationship, mm-hmm. and the structure of the film is not really very um, familiar or story-ish. It yeah. kind of feels... It seems somewhat generous to call it structure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it just sort of, like, leaps ahead with no pattern, uh, you know, to, to certain points, or, or, you know, I think there are flashbacks. I uh, know there are flashbacks. Um, it's a little bit messy, like... Like maybe the inside of Freddy's mind. Yeah. We've talked about Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman. We haven't talked about Amy Adams. Yeah. Who's amazing. And I think even though, like like, like we said, talked about, the film doesn't really get into the, the like, uh, taking down Scientology or, or cults or anything like that. But the thing about Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, uh, Lancaster, is that even though he he must know that he's bullshitting, that he made all this up, mm-hmm. when he's into it, he's convinced himself of it yeah whereas i think amy adams is almost like worse because i think she knows it's bullshit all the time and is just just keeping it going because it's good for their family because it's doing good for them she's more and she might also a little bit more of a lady Macbeth. maybe but she also you know an argument could be made that she's also supporting her husband you know, like I'm <laughs> yeah, sure yeah. if you asked, I'm sure if you asked the character that she'd say that's what she yeah. was doing. And there's a certain, yeah. I mean, the there's a re- there's a reason there's a lot of his family in the movie. Yeah. We're all, also, um, Jesse well, Plemons. Uh, Jesse Plemons. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. And who, she's, who, by the way, like it, to cast someone as Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, I never would have thought of it before. But yeah, Jesse perfect. Plemons. <laughs> perfect. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, yeah, she she is great because it just. You know, and that's the thing. I mean, when you do think of the movie, you do think of the these two men. But she, her performance certainly. But the character is no, her character is no slouch. Like you see this, you know, the uh, I'll just call it the sink scene, and uh-huh. uh, and you realize like, yeah, she is not going to be brushed aside just because he is the head of this thing. That doesn't mean that she can just be and and uh, the visual uh, at the end of his giant office, and she's just off to the side. Uh-huh. She's still talking. Yeah, she's off to like he's front and center, but you do get the impression like yeah, she's got a lot more power behind the scenes than you think. 
Um, and by the way, speaking of it being funny, the size of that office is hilarious. Oh yeah, to me. It's, it's, I laughed when it. When, yeah. uh, it's when it Montgomery Burnsish. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, and I do want to also talk about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance because, you know, as somebody who does like good acting all around, but you know, we all there are things that we all like and are comfortable with, and it's like. Oh, someone's going to be playing a uh, like a, a cult leader. Well, that's going to be great because that means he's going to get to overplay it. He's going to get mm-hmm. to like, and then you actually see that performance, and you're just like, oh, he's not like playing. He's not like playing this thing up. That makes me more uncomfortable, uh-huh. which is probably the idea, you know. And just uh, and it reminds me of like Michael Parks in Red State. It reminds me of uh, John Hawks and Martha Marcy May Marlene. Um, but it's so much more than that because he needs to be somebody who just ha- who just oozes confidence. He needs to be somebody that attracts people with not merely what he says, but the way he says it. And he just seems like just uh, I remember even from the from the trailer where he lists all the things he is, <laughs> and he just doesn't bat an eye when he says nuclear physicist. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> like he just he just is all these things, and he's and he's a, in many ways a ridiculous character, but just totally confident but also can be fun loving like when he's singing you know uh, mm-hmm. I won't go sailing uh, yeah. and all that and just uh, and then mirrored that with like the song he sings at the end which is quite sad and tragic yeah. and it's just such a and of course the film on, on top of everything else is beautiful I saw it 70 millimeter and it's great and that, I'm usually not really that like aware of that sort of thing but like and it, and it also seems like, well, this is hardly an epic film. This is not Lawrence of Arabia. Why did they shoot it like this? And then you see the crags in Joaquin Phoenix's face, uh-huh. which is its own little tundra. And you're just like, oh, okay, I got it. And then, I mean, there's beautiful shots of, of the sea and of the uh, yeah. the desert in my personal <laughs> favorite part of the entire movie. And he says, yeah. he's going very fast. Good boy. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and, that's the, and, like, it's hard to pick like my favorite scene obviously the pro the first processing scene is like yeah. a that is a triumph of directing writing editing and acting like that is amazing but that jail scene is oh, pretty yeah. amazing i also like the scene pre philip seymour hoffman um where uh, at the photo booth where with the it's Joaquin phoenix and who i didn't realize till later was w earl brown i know he doesn't look a bit like him yeah um, but uh, that's a great scene too because that's also the thing you're talking about that's very funny but also really uncomfortable. Yeah, because that's the thing. It's 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 funny because you're what you you feel safe watching a movie and this is goofy. It's uncomfortable because like for example, two days ago I was at Ralph's uh, looking at the uh, Atkins bars and this guy comes up. It was W. O'Brien, and man was he angry. <laughs> He's like, I need to lose some weight. Hand those uh, Atkins bars over. No, uh, there a guy walked up who had a disheveled quality to him. He did not seem homeless. But I realized as he started speaking to me in a language that is not a language. Uh-huh. Like, oh, this is de- – he wasn't aggressive. He was incredibly right. friendly. That didn't help my comfort level. Um, <laughs> you know, And I felt bad for him, and I was very cordial. I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, that's – you know, admittedly, I'm not familiar with every language. I'm positive that was just gibberish. Uh-huh. But then he's then he jumped into English and is like, like, "All right, have a good shop," <laughs> which was kind of funny. But at the same time, it's just like it, it is an no, uncomfortable. That's really funny. Yeah, it is an uncomfortable <laughs> thing, and like, uh, and that's that's what that scene captures. Like, yeah. I don't know. And so, 
Yeah, so uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen The Master, and I'm sure they some of them really like it. Um, it just has so much stuff that I responded to. Um, this was a good year for me being really uncomfortable. Um, but in the best <laughs> Isn't it possible, always? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It seems to happen a lot, uh, but in the best possible way. So, All right, I think that's a good place to end, finally. Um, this has been fun, but we got to get out of here. Uh, oh, also, everybody it, should see a documentary called The American Scream. Oh, yeah, American Scream. Very yeah, good. That's Very all. Good. Um, so... You can find us at battleshipretention.com. Email us david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. Follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. Follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com. My other podcast is the television review show Previously On. That's at previouslyonshow.com. So, thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.